Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm still here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news, politics, current events, and lots of other exciting things, all viewed through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. This is the second installment of Sacraments, 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 Sacraments. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the church, seven capital S sacraments, by the way. Last episode, we talked about baptism. This time around, we are continuing the rite of Christian initiation and looking at Eucharist. Along with baptism and confirmation, confirmation which we'll talk about in another episode, maybe the next one, Eucharist is referred to as one of the three sacraments of initiation. But of these three, the Eucharist holds a particularly central place. As the Catechism reminds us in its summary, It is in the Eucharist that we unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all. As Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Church's constitution on the sacred liturgy reminds us the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith and life. There's a lot to talk about here, David. What shall we get into first? Well, first of all, so I come from a background where I hung out in my early formative years as a Christian with a lot of Protestants they were all over the map in terms of some of them would bake bread and you'd get kind of fresh baked bread. And some of them would bring challah, sort of Jewish bread that's used in, in liturgy and use that for the Eucharist. And some would have little little saltine crackers or the equivalent of a little like little oyster crackers. And so for a lot of potential listeners out there, I guess one of the first questions that could be asked is, you know, when you go to Catholic Mass, you always are getting the same sort of thing. It's a little flat, pressed little disc with a cross in it that has kind of a wan taste to it. Why is it that there's so much variety in the Protestant notion of what the, the element of the Eucharist is when it comes to bread and Catholics are so uniform? That is such a, a basic question. I was not expecting that. That's, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, the short answer is supply and demand. So the supply for, I mean, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian denomination. We'll just focus on the United States, on the United States, in the U.S., but also globally, you know, with over 1.2 billion uh, members. And so part of it is just practicality. And so there are companies that mass produce these little breads, as they were, though they don't often feel or look like bread, which raises a question, frankly, about their efficacy, because part of the, the symbolon in Greek, the, the mystery part of the symbol, what's supposed to be present in the elements themselves, is, as Augustine would say, the res, the, the thing itself, is that it's supposed to feel and look and taste like bread as the wine is as well. So when it comes to the valid matter for the celebration of the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Catholic Church says you need to have unleavened bread made of wheat and water, and you need to have wine. So no grape juice, no cinnamon toast crunch, no, you know, any of this kind of stuff. I asked the basic question because I was interested in getting at something, and you gave me a fascinating answer because I thought that you were going to go all theological, and instead you went market values. Like, this is just, this is economies of scale. That's exactly what it is. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay, so now let's... let's there get... is no the... In other words, there is no theological reason. You could use pita bread, you could use matzah, you could use any unleavened bread, and it's a valid it's a valid element for the sacrament of of the Eucharist. This is fascinating. I think that would probably blow some Catholics' minds to realize that. But let's talk now about less visible, more invisible things. So 
I, I think that there's also across the, the wider Christian spectrum a lot of ideas about what is going on in the Eucharist, what happens. And so from a Catholic perspective, what basically is happening when someone says the body of Christ and, and a person says amen? Yeah, that's great. So a couple different things. Augustine says several things are happening there. So this goes back to the fourth century, the great doctor of the church, the doctor of grace, St. Augustine. He says, obviously, a couple things. The first and foremost, what's happening when we gather at the Eucharist is that the body of Christ visible, which is all the baptized, the church, all of us, like St. Paul says, St. Augustine reiterates, and others do as well throughout the tradition, we come and make present in a real way Christ, you know, as the assembly with the presider. That's one thing. We hear the word proclaimed in which the word of God makes present Christ, who is the incarnate Word of God. And then most especially, we might say, yeah, actually, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Church's document on the liturgy says, especially present in the Eucharistic species is the sacramental presence of Christ. So Christ is made present in all these different ways, these four ways, the assembly and presider, the Word of God, and in the Eucharistic species, but especially so. So what is especially made present? And that's where we need to be very particular. Sometimes you hear people say, Catholics believe in the real presence. That's true. But what do we mean by real presence? We mean, more technically, the sacramental presence of Christ. So here's a trick. It's kind of a trick question. It might come across as a trick question. True or false, Jesus is present in the Eucharistic species at Mass? I think a lot of people would say true. Yes, and they would be wrong. They'd be wrong. This goes back to the ninth century controversies. Two Benedictine monks, sacramental theologians, uh, Robertus and Retramnus, great names. Pascatius Robertus is the full name of the one dude. And they went back and forth about trying to clarify what do we mean by the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And one, there was this kind of devotional thing, and you'll hear this sometimes among Catholics, about the bloody sacrifice or the unbloody sacrifice. And, and this, this one was talking about how Jesus is kind of brought down from heaven, you know, and we talk about you know, the, the body of Jesus, and we're like crunching the bones again. It's really graphic, actually. And what gets clarified, to make a long story short, is that it is not the physical body of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, who suffered, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, it is not his body. We're not gnawing on the arm of Jesus. What we are is receiving sacramentally the presence of Christ, you know, God's presence on earth, as such, but to make a distinction between what we might call the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Is that making sense? It is, and I, I want to make sure that listeners are following. And so we're not saying that somehow there's a magical kind of hocus-pocus where a body, like a corpse, shows up on the altar, and then suddenly we're—so this it's is— interesting you choose the phrase hocus-pocus. Because hocus corpus meum. I realized yeah. it, was, it was intentional, but, uh, but I think a lot of times my atheist friends say, yeah, you guys are basically vampires or you're, you're cannibals, and this is not cannibalism, it's not vampirism, no. it's not—we're no. not talking about zombie Jesus here. No, we're not really talking about Jesus. We're talking about the sacramental presence of Christ. I mean, it, that's what the Church teaches— and that's why you hear, for instance, like after the Lamb of God and the sign of peace, when we affirm, our, again, a reiteration kind of our unworthiness of receiving such a great gift of God's self to us, we say this phrase from the gospel, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and I shall be healed. 
But before that, the priest says, behold, the Lamb of God. He doesn't say, and he should not say, though sometimes priests go off script, and, and there's nothing more cringeworthy than say, behold, this is Jesus. It is not Jesus. It is the Lamb of God. It is the Word incarnate. It is the presence of Christ. It is the, you know, the second person of the Trinity made present to us in this gift of the Lord's Supper and so forth. Well, and I, I was talking to some students a couple of weeks ago about exactly that phrasing, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. We went back and we looked at that passage. And when we look at what the Roman centurion is saying, it was basically saying, listen, sometimes I show up in person and I'm effective. Other times I simply say, it's going to happen and it's just as effective. And what I was trying to say to them was, Pretty much what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be the body of Jesus showing up in person there for this to effectively be Jesus's, the Christ, the presence of Christ for us, that Jesus doesn't have to be recapitulated as a body for that to happen. It can happen in the same way that the Roman centurion understood that there was power at a, at a distance or power with physical removal. And, and I think that that, under, that underscores kind of what we're trying to say in that moment is like, we're not saying that Jesus is physically showing up here. We're saying that Christ is present with us in his word. Well, and we can say that Christ is physically present to us under this Eucharistic species, I think that's important. I, again, I, I know this may seem abstract to our listeners. Mm -hmm. So to say that we believe in the real presence is to believe in the real presence of Christ. And that to say, when you say Jesus, you're talking about a historical person who was the word incarnate, fully divine, fully human, etc. Here we're talking about, again, the eternal word coming to us, not as one of us, but under the elements of bread and wine. Okay. So that's really important. We're not talking about Jesus the historical person. We're talking about Christ, the eternal word. Let me see if I'm following. So the second person of the Trinity, the word with a capital W, shows up in Jesus Christ in a historical moment, and Christ is present. The word, the second person of the Trinity, is present with us there, if I'm following. Also, when the words of institution are properly and licitly said, Christ is showing up there as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word in those species. Well, I got to well. stop you because you're using a lot of qualifiers that don't apply okay. because something could still be a valid celebration of the Eucharist that isn't licit. I love it. Tell me more. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about before. Licit just means it's authorized. Valid means it really happens. So I'll give you an example. Former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has been removed from public ministry indefinitely, right? He, he is been kicked out of the College of Cardinals, but he is still a bishop and he's still a priest. You can't unordain somebody. And so if he starts celebrating Mass and follows, you know, the Eucharistic prayer and intends to, as the, the old kind of manuals would call it, intends to confect the sacred mysteries, it is validly Mass. It is, it's legitimately the presence of Christ. It is valid, you know, sacrament. It's totally illicit. He's not authorized to do it. He's not allowed to do it. That's that's a difference between lucidity and validity. So given the fact that I, I fumbled the words there, the other pieces that I was laying into place about the, the historical showing up of the word in Jesus and the historical showing yeah. up of the word in the presence in the Eucharist, yeah. am I on to something? You're on to something here. And it's also important to realize that the term Christus, the anointed one, is an affirmation of Jesus of Nazareth messiahship. So we're, we're affirming something about the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, who we call the Christ. And that same acclamation of the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, we, we affirm in the presence of the divinity of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. 
So that's that's the parallel. But to say Jesus, that's where you get into cannibalism stuff. We're not talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, is this his arm? Is this his eye? What are we chewing on here, right? So that's I just want to set that aside and, and say for a minute. Then people will say, well. Another kind of thing that people think about often with the Catholic Church is that the difference between Catholics and Protestants is that when we say we believe in the real presence, we mean transubstantiation. And you hear the T word thrown around a lot. And I just want to make it very clear that, and and you got to listen carefully to how I say this, listeners, the Church does not teach that we believe in transubstantiation. What the Council of Trent, the Church's teaching on transubstantiation, says is that it is a fitting way to understand what we believe— so the distinction there is really important. Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation as such. Transubstantiation is a theory based on Aristotelian hylomorphism and medieval appropriation of that, most notably in Thomas Aquinas's writings, but also in others, that says that everything that exists in the material world is composed of substance and form. And the substance of something is the whatness of what it is, and the form is how it appears in reality, and it has accidental properties like taste and shape and weight and color and so forth. And so using transubstantiation as an analogy, somebody like Thomas Aquinas says, well, how do we account for the fact that it tastes and feels and looks like bread and wine still, and yet we say it is on some metaphysical level, something else. It is the presence of Christ among us. And his proposal is, well, you know, if we borrow Aristotle's worldview, we can say the substance, kind of the the whatness of it changes, truly changes, but its appearance remains the same. And in this principle of hylomorphism of substance and accidents allows for that kind of parallel to play out. Now, what the church teaches is that's not a bad way to think about it. That's perfectly legitimate. But we should not conflate it to say that that's what we believe. That's not a true statement. We don't, we don't assert that's not a tenet of our faith. It's a way to explain what we mean. So what is it? What's the tenet of our faith? What we say we believe when we say amen to the proclamation of the body of Christ, we say we believe in the sacramental presence of Christ in this unique way in the blessed sacrament. I can say more about that too because Augustine has a beautiful sermon 272 where Augustine talks about when the priest holds up the, the blessed sacrament at the end of the Eucharistic prayer and says, you know, behold the Lamb of God, behold the one who takes away the sins of the world, and you say amen to this, Augustine says, you know, see who you are, become what you receive, recognizing that we too are the body of Christ. We see the fact that we are united to Christ on some kind of intimate level through baptism and even more so through the sharing and communion. And so it's a, it's a reminder that it's not just us worshiping the Eucharist is if God comes down to us under the species of the Blessed Sacrament as bread and wine, and that that has nothing to do with us. But through baptism, like we talked about in the last episode, we are knitted to Christ, we're knitted in communion to God into the life of the Trinity in a unique way. And when we receive communion and we say amen to the body of Christ, we're also affirming an amen that we are the body of Christ in the world. So let me see if I've got an analogy and can kind of sum up what you just said. So I have, what we're talking about is a kind of a a loving, intimate connectedness to Christ through this. And we could look at someone who is in love with a spouse, and we could say, ah, you're in love, and love is a mystery. But a person could get really, really wrapped up in, but are you giving your spouse flowers? And you could say, well, no, I'm not. And you could say, well, then it's not really love, because what we've done is we've mixed up 
a particular mechanism for showing and expressing love and for thinking about, you know, a visible sign of love for the love itself. And we could say, if you're not giving flowers, then you're not really understanding what love is. No, you can completely understand what love is and not have that particular explanation of love in terms of the giving of flowers. You can have this sacramental presence and not explain it through transubstantiation. There may be other ways to explain it. Transubstantiation may be a good way to explain it. Giving flowers to your spouse may be a good way to express love. But if you mix up and make that the only primary way to talk about it, you've sort of put the cart before the horse. Sort of. I'm not sure if I followed that analogy entirely, but the principle is exactly right. That the term transubstantiation is not a church teaching. It is a way to describe how what we believe happens. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are some people for whom if you don't say what happens at that moment is transubstantiation, they will say you've you've misunderstood what Roman Catholics teach. That's right. And yeah. you're saying no no you're that's that's yeah. not co- that's that's taking an explanation that's or, right. or taking a visible sort of of kind of way of of mechanizing this and mistaking it for the mystery that's there. That's exactly right. And giving flowers and mistaking that for the mystery of love would be kind of what I'm trying to say. At the risk of of dragging this out, I I would actually think another analogy is more fitting. Bring it. Um, And it's right up your alley, as we talked about with books and your interest in physics, which is quantum mechanics and the mathematical formulae and the observation, whether it's a cloud mapping or whatever, of the location of certain particles like electrons. We don't actually know where they are, but we have a process to describe where we think they are mm-hmm. because it points to a mystery that's beyond our grasp ability. So true is that with the physical world and physics and, and quantum mechanics, even more so is it true with the mystery of God. And so I think that that's exactly right. What you're getting at is, is exactly right. And, and that's, that's to say to people, if you do not understand what transubstantiation means, if you don't understand, because in order to actually understand it, my guess is 99% of the people who throw that word around have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They've just somewhere along the way picked up that Catholics believe in this. And it's not their fault. I mean, that's just, you can pick it up anywhere. And and sometimes it's in religious ed, or sometimes it's in RCIA, or wherever you have it. But you don't need to understand it. In fact, in order to truly understand transubstantiation, you have to understand all this medieval and ancient philosophy. And, And it's not necessary. The church doesn't require that of you. What we do say is, what we believe what happens in the sacrament of Eucharist is that God comes to us in this particular way, it is mysterious, it is beyond our comprehension, and if you claim to understand it fully, then what you understand isn't what's going on. I've got one final question. Oftentimes we see the Eucharist, not oftentimes, but we, we do see the Eucharist being weaponized in certain cases where a bishop or a priest will determine that a person is in sin, persistent sin or whatever, and they will withhold or deny the Eucharist. I don't want to ask about that specifically, but I want to use that as a springboard to ask this question. I oftentimes will approach the Eucharist having not gone through the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I will approach the Eucharist in a state of what, from I, I guess from one standpoint, the Church would call a state of sin. And I'm wondering how fearful should we as lay people be in approaching the Eucharist, because sometimes you'll hear more conservative People talk about how powerful this is and how we bring damnation on ourselves if we take it unworthily. I'd really like to ask that question for my fellow lay people. How scared should we be if we haven't confessed immediately before taking the Eucharist? Depends on what what you've done. (laughs) Okay. I mean, the sacrament of penance, which we'll get to in another segment later this season, 
has developed a lot over the last 2,000 years, I'll say that. But its origins are found in the early centuries of Christianity as a means, as a ritual, as a process of reintegration into community and, and restoring relationship with God, oneself, and, and the rest of the community after really grave offenses. The truth is we all present ourselves to the Eucharist unworthily because we're all sinners. If we understand worthiness to mean perfection or some kind of clear slate or something like that, then that's impossible. If that weren't true, we wouldn't need a penitential act every time we celebrate the Eucharist. That is a rite of absolution. My point is simply that the penitential act is, it is an absolution of, it's an acknowledgement of our sins. It's a silent confession of it, the calling to mind of our sins. It is an absolution of that sinfulness. So the, the kind of ordinary everyday things that we are encountering and, and permit by way of our sinfulness are accounted for in the penitential act to prepare us to hear the word of God and to come to the table of the Lord. There are some things, though, that are much more grave. You know, did you murder somebody? Did you, are you committing adultery? Are they, you know, these kinds of things that are much more serious that in the old sort of parlance, we would talk about mortal sins. Those are the kinds of things that have recourse to the sacrament of penance prior to communion. But you know, you've raised a point that is worth its own segment of conversation around the weaponizing of the Eucharist, which is it's not our place as ministers of the sacrament to determine whether or not somebody should receive the Eucharist or not. You know, you talked about approaching worthily, unworthily. The idea is it's, it's about the internal discernment of the individual and to do so with an informed conscience, to do an examination of conscience, to do it perhaps under the you know, pastoral guidance and care of, of, a, of a priest or deacon or minister of the church, however you find it, your spiritual director. But it's not up for the minister of the sacrament to be denying people. And that's how it's often been used. I will say this too about how, you know, this business about needing to be absolutely, you know, as if you need to go to confession five minutes before mass because you might, you know, sin or have an impure thought or lie to somebody before you receive the communion. And so, you you know, you kind of have to like, go right up to it. That sort of thing is dispelled. It was not an issue in, in the 4th century with St. Augustine. It wasn't an issue in the 11th century and 12th century with Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and others. Because, you know, the way that I think Augustine says this well, and Lombard picks this up and sets the tone for a lot of medieval theologians, that when we come to receive the Eucharist, we can receive it, he says, in two ways. The first is the way everybody receives it, sacramentally, he calls it. We receive the Eucharistic sacramentally because Christ is sacramentally present in it. Through the sacrament, what is and appears as bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ, of Christ, not of Jesus, <laughs> of Christ. Second, he says, though, if we are in this quote-unquote state of grace, whatever that means, right, it's another kind of popular term that people throw around without thinking about what they're talking about. We can talk about that some other time. But if you are in another state of openness, maybe one of, of right disposition and so forth, you can also receive, you do, you do not only receive the Eucharist sacramentally, you receive the Eucharist spiritually. And that is a kind of different relationship to it. You know, it doesn't change the Eucharist itself. It, it's about your disposition in receiving it. And I think that's lost in a lot of the modern understandings. You know, it becomes, we hold on to the real presence side of things, the sacramental presence of Christ, but instead of recognizing that God takes care of God's self in terms of giving the gift of God's self yet again, even to sinners as we all are, but that 
we don't need to protect the blessed sacrament from someone we perceive as sinful. And I think that's really the crux of, of the question that you're asking. You know, how is this playing out? It's so seriously inappropriate for people to deny anybody communion. Now, it may be wrong for somebody to approach the Blessed Sacrament because for whatever reason, their belief, their state of kind of moral rectitude, their life choices, whatever, but it's, it's never, and I'm just going to be bold about this, it's never the, the role of the minister to deny somebody that. We don't know their internal state or, or any of these other issues. This time around, we are continuing the rite of Christian initiation and looking at Eucharist. Along with baptism and confirmation, confirmation which we'll talk about in another episode, maybe the next one, Eucharist is referred to as one of the three sacraments of initiation. But of these three, the Eucharist holds a particularly central place. As the Catechism reminds us in its summary, it is in the Eucharist that we unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all. As Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Church's constitution on the sacred liturgy reminds us the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith and life. There's a lot to talk about here, David. What shall we get into first? Well, first of all, so I come from a background where I hung out in my early formative years as a Christian with a lot of Protestants. They were all over the map in terms of some of them would bake bread and you'd get kind of fresh-baked bread, and some of them would bring challah, sort of Jewish bread that's used in, in liturgy, and use that for the Eucharist. And some would have little little saltine crackers, or the equivalent of a little, like little oyster crackers. And so for a lot of potential listeners out there, I guess one of the first questions that could be asked is, you know, when you go to Catholic Mass, you always are getting the same sort of thing. It's a little flat, pressed little disc with a cross in it, that has kind of a wan taste to it. Why is it that there's so much variety in the Protestant notion of what the the element of the Eucharist is when it comes to bread and Catholics are so uniform? That is such a, a basic question. I was not expecting that. That's, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, the short answer is supply and demand. So the supply for, I mean, the, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian denomination. We'll just focus on the United States, on the United in the U.S., but also globally. You know, with over 1.2 billion uh, members, and so part of it is just practicality. And so there are companies that mass produce these little breads, as they were, though they don't often feel or look like bread, which raises a question, frankly, about their efficacy, because part of the, the symbol on in Greek, the, the mystery part of the symbol, what's supposed to be present in the elements themselves, is, as Augustine would say, the res, the, the thing itself, is that it's supposed to feel and look and taste like bread as the wine is as well. So when it comes to the valid matter for the celebration of the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Catholic Church says you need to have unleavened bread made of wheat and water, and you need to have wine. So no grape juice, no cinnamon toast crunch, no, you know, any of this kind of stuff. I asked the basic question because I was interested in getting at something, and you gave me a fascinating answer because I thought that you were going to go all theological, and instead you went market values. Like, this is just, this is economies of scale. That's exactly what it is. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay, so now let's... let's there get... is no, the in other words, there is no theological reason. You could use pita bread, you could use matzah, you could use any unleavened bread, 
and it's a valid it's a valid element for the sacrament of of the Eucharist. This is fascinating. I think that would probably blow some Catholics' minds to realize that. But let's talk now about less visible, more invisible things. So I, I think that there's also across the the wider Christian spectrum a lot of ideas about what is going on in the Eucharist, what happens. And so, from a Catholic perspective, what basically is happening when someone says the body of Christ, and, and a person says, amen. Yeah, that's great. So a couple different things. Augustine says several things are happening there. So this goes back to the fourth century, the great doctor of the church, the doctor of grace, St. Augustine. He says, obviously, a couple things. The first and foremost, what's happening when we gather at the Eucharist is that the body of Christ visible, which is all the baptized, the church, all of us, like St. Paul says, St. Augustine reiterates, and others do as well throughout the tradition, we come and make present in a real way Christ, you know, as the assembly with the presider. That's one thing. We hear the word proclaimed in which the word of God makes present Christ, who is the incarnate word of God. And then most especially, we might say, yeah, actually, Sacrosan of Concilium, the church's document on the liturgy says, especially present in the Eucharistic species is the sacramental presence of Christ. So Christ is made present in all these different ways, these four ways, the assembly and presider, the word of God, and in the Eucharistic species, but especially so. So what is especially made present? And that's where we need to be very particular. Sometimes you hear people say, Catholics believe in the real presence. That's true. But what do we mean by real presence? We mean, more technically, the sacramental presence of Christ. So here's a trick. It's kind of a trick question. It might come across as a trick question. True or false, Jesus is present in the Eucharistic species at Mass? I think a lot of people would say true. Yes, and they would be wrong. They'd be wrong. This goes back to the ninth century controversies, two Benedictine monks, sacramental theologians, uh, Robertus and Retramnus, great names. Pascatius Robertus is the full name of the one dude. And they went back and forth about trying to clarify what do we mean by the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And one, there was this kind of devotional thing, and you'll hear this sometimes among Catholics, about the bloody sacrifice or the unbloody sacrifice. And, and this, this one was talking about how Jesus is kind of brought down from heaven, you know, and we talk about you know, the the body of Jesus, and we're like crunching the bones again. It's really graphic, actually. And what gets clarified, to make a long story short, is that it is not the physical body of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, who suffered, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, it is not his body. We're not gnawing on the arm of Jesus. What we are is receiving sacramentally the presence of Christ, you know, God's presence on earth, as such, but to make a distinction between what we might call the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Is that making sense? It is, and I, I want to make sure that listeners are following. And so we're not saying that somehow there's a magical kind of hocus-pocus where a body, like a corpse, shows up on the altar, and then suddenly we're—so this it's is— interesting you choose the phrase hocus-pocus. Because hocus corpus meum. I realized yeah. it, was, it was intentional, but— uh, but I think a lot of times my atheist friends say, yeah, you guys are basically vampires or you're, you're cannibals. And this is not cannibalism. It's not vampirism. No. It's not, we're not no. talking about zombie Jesus here. No, we're not really talking about Jesus. We're talking about the sacramental presence of Christ. I mean, it, that's what the church teaches. And that's why you hear, for instance, like after the Lamb of God and the sign of peace, when we affirm our, again, a reiteration kind of our unworthiness of receiving such a great gift of God's self to us. We say this phrase from the gospel, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and I shall be healed. 
But before that, the priest says, behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't say, and he should not say, though sometimes priests go off script, and, and there's nothing more cringeworthy than say, behold, this is Jesus. It is not Jesus. It is the Lamb of God. It is the Word incarnate. It is the presence of Christ. It is the, you know, the second person of the Trinity made present to us in this gift of the Lord's Supper and so forth. Well, and I, I was talking to some students a couple of weeks ago about exactly that phrasing, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. We went back and we looked at that passage. And when we look at what the Roman centurion is saying, it was basically saying, listen, sometimes I show up in person and I'm effective. Other times I simply say, it's going to happen and it's just as effective. And what I was trying to say to them was, Pretty much what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be the body of Jesus showing up in person there for this to effectively be Jesus's, the Christ, the presence of Christ for us, that Jesus doesn't have to be recapitulated as a body for that to happen. It can happen in the same way that the Roman centurion understood that there was power at a, at a distance or power with physical removal. And, and I think that that, under, that underscores kind of what we're trying to say in that moment is like, we're not saying that Jesus is physically showing up here. We're saying that Christ is present with us in his word. Oh, and we can say that Christ is physically present to us under this Eucharistic species. I think that's important. I, again, I, I know this may seem abstract to our listeners. Mm -hmm. So to say that we believe in the real presence is to believe in the real presence of Christ. And that to say, when you say Jesus, you're talking about a historical person who was the word incarnate, fully divine, fully human, etc. Here we're talking about, again, the eternal word coming to us, not as one of us, but under the elements of bread and wine. Okay. So that's really important. We're not talking about Jesus the historical person, we're talking about Christ, the eternal word. Let me see if I'm following. So the second person of the Trinity, the word with a capital W, shows up in Jesus Christ in a historical moment, and Christ is present. The word, the second person of the Trinity, is present with us there, if I'm following. Also, when the words of institution are properly and licitly said, Christ is showing up there as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word in those species. Well, I got to well. stop you because you're using a lot of qualifiers that don't apply okay. because something could still be a valid celebration of the Eucharist that isn't licit. I love it. Tell me more. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about before. Licit just means it's authorized. Valid means it really happens. So I'll give you an example. Former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has been removed from public ministry indefinitely, right? He, he is been kicked out of the College of Cardinals, but he is still a bishop and he's still a priest. You can't unordain somebody. And so if he starts celebrating Mass and follows, you know, the Eucharistic prayer and intends to, as the, the old kind of manuals would call it, intends to confect the sacred mysteries, it is validly Mass. It is, it's legitimately the presence of Christ. It is valid, you know, sacrament. It's totally illicit. He's not authorized to do it. He's not allowed to do it. That's that's a difference between lucidity and validity. So given the fact that I, I fumbled the words there, the other pieces that I was laying into place about the, the historical showing up of the word in Jesus and the historical showing yeah. up of the word in the presence in the Eucharist, yeah. am I and onto something? You're onto something here. And it's also important to realize that the term Christus, the anointed one, is an affirmation of Jesus of Nazareth messiahship. So we're, we're affirming something about the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, who we call the Christ, and that same acclamation of the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, we, we affirm in the presence of the divinity of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. 
So that's that's the parallel. But to say Jesus, that's where you get into cannibalism stuff. We're not talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, is this his arm? Is this his eye? What are we chewing on here, right? So that's I just want to set that aside and, and say for a minute, then people will say, well, Another kind of thing that people think about often with the Catholic Church is that the difference between Catholics and Protestants is that when we say we believe in the real presence, we mean transubstantiation. And you hear the T word thrown around a lot. And I just want to make it very clear that, and and you got to listen carefully to how I say this, listeners, the Church does not teach that we believe in transubstantiation. But the Council of Trent, the Church's teaching on transubstantiation, says is that it is a fitting way to understand what we believe— so the distinction there is really important. Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation as such. Transubstantiation is a theory based on Aristotelian hylomorphism and medieval appropriation of that, most notably in Thomas Aquinas' writings, but also in others, that says that everything that exists in the material world is composed of substance and form. And the substance of something is the whatness of what it is, and the form is how it appears in reality, and it has accidental properties like taste and shape and weight and color and so forth. And so using transubstantiation as an analogy, somebody like Thomas Aquinas says, well, how do we account for the fact that it tastes and feels and looks like bread and wine still, and yet we say it is, on some metaphysical level, something else. It is the presence of Christ among us. And his proposal is, well, you know, if we borrow Aristotle's worldview, we can say the substance, kind of the the whatness of it changes, truly changes, but its appearance remains the same. And in this principle of hylomorphism of substance and accidents allows for that kind of parallel to play out. Now, what the church teaches is that's not a bad way to think about it. That's perfectly legitimate. But we should not conflate it to say that that's what we believe. That's not a true statement. We don't, we don't assert that's not a tenet of our faith. It's a way to explain what we mean. So what is it? What's the tenet of our faith? What we say we believe when we say amen to the proclamation of the body of Christ, we say we believe in the sacramental presence of Christ in this unique way in the blessed sacrament. I can say more about that too because Augustine has a beautiful sermon 272 where Augustine talks about when the priest holds up the, the blessed sacrament at the end of the Eucharistic prayer and says, you know, behold the Lamb of God, behold the one who takes away the sins of the world, and you say amen to this, Augustine says, you know, see who you are, become what you receive, recognizing that we too are the body of Christ. We see the fact that we are united to Christ on some kind of intimate level through baptism and even more so through the sharing and communion. And so it's a, it's a reminder that it's not just us worshiping the Eucharist is if God comes down to us under the species of the Blessed Sacrament as bread and wine, and that that has nothing to do with us. But through baptism, like we talked about in the last episode, we are knitted to Christ, we're knitted in communion to God into the life of the Trinity in a unique way. And when we receive communion and we say amen to the body of Christ, we're also affirming an amen that we are the body of Christ in the world. So let me see if I've got an analogy and can kind of sum up what you just said. So I have, what we're talking about is a kind of a, a loving, intimate connectedness to Christ through this. And we could look at someone who is in love with a spouse, and we could say, ah, you're in love, and love is a mystery. But a person could get really, really wrapped up in, but are you giving your spouse flowers? 
And you could say, well, no, I'm not. And you could say, well, then it's not really love because what we've done is we've mixed up a particular mechanism for showing and expressing love and for thinking about, you know, a visible sign of love for the love itself. And we could say, if you're not giving flowers, then you're not really understanding what love is. No, you can completely understand what love is and not have that particular explanation of love in terms of the giving of flowers. You can have this sacramental presence and not explain it through transubstantiation. There may be other ways to explain it. Transubstantiation may be a good way to explain it. Giving flowers to your spouse may be a good way to express love. But if you mix up and make that the only primary way to talk about it, you've sort of put the cart before the horse. Sort of. I, I'm not sure if I followed that analogy entirely, but the principle is exactly right. That the term transubstantiation is not a church teaching. It is a way to describe how what we believe happens. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are some people for whom if you don't say what happens at that moment is transubstantiation, they will say you've you've misunderstood what Roman Catholics teach. That's right. And yeah. you're saying, no, no, you're, that's that's yeah. not co- that's that's taking an explanation that's or, right. or taking a visible sort of of kind of way of, of mechanizing this and mistaking it for the mystery that's there. That's exactly right. And giving flowers and mistaking that for the mystery of love would be kind of what I'm trying to at, say. At the risk of, of dragging this out, I, I would actually think another analogy is more fitting. Bring it. Um, and it's right up your alley, as we talked about with books and your interest in physics, which is quantum mechanics and the mathematical formulae and the observation, whether it's a cloud mapping or whatever, of the location of certain particles like electrons. We don't actually know where they are, but we have a process to describe where we think they are Mm -hmm. because it points to a mystery that's beyond our grasp ability. So true is that with the physical world and physics and, and quantum mechanics. Even more so is it true with the mystery of God. And so I think that that's exactly right. What you're getting at is, is exactly right. And, and that's, that's to say to people, if you do not understand what transubstantiation means, if you don't understand, because in order to actually understand it, my guess is 99% of the people who throw that word around have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They've just somewhere along the way picked up that Catholics believe in this. And it's not their fault. I mean, that's just, you can pick it up anywhere. And and sometimes it's in religious ed or sometimes it's in RCIA or wherever you have it. But you don't need to understand it. In fact, in order to truly understand transubstantiation, you have to understand all this medieval and ancient philosophy. And, and it's not necessary. The church doesn't require that of you. What we do say is what we believe what happens in the sacrament of Eucharist is that God comes to us in this particular way. It is mysterious. It is beyond our comprehension. And if you claim to understand it fully, then what you understand isn't what's going on. I've got one final question. Oftentimes we see the Eucharist, not oftentimes, but we we do see the Eucharist being weaponized in certain cases where a bishop or a priest will determine that a person is in sin, persistent sin or whatever, and they will withhold or deny the Eucharist. I don't want to ask about that specifically, but I want to use that as a springboard to ask this question. I oftentimes will approach the Eucharist having not gone through the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I will approach the Eucharist in a state of what, from I, I guess from one standpoint, the Church would call a state of sin. And I'm wondering how fearful should we as lay people be in approaching the Eucharist, because sometimes you'll hear more conservative People talk about how powerful this is and how we bring damnation on ourselves if we take it unworthily. I'd really like to ask that question for my fellow lay people. How scared should we be if we haven't confessed immediately before taking the Eucharist? Depends on what, you're, what you've done. <laughs> okay. I mean, 
the sacrament of penance, which we'll get to in another segment later this season, has developed a lot over the last 2,000 years, I'll say that. But its origins are found in the early centuries of Christianity as a means, as a ritual, as a process of reintegration into community and, and restoring relationship with God, oneself, and, and the rest of the community after really grave offenses. The truth is we all present ourselves to the Eucharist unworthily because we're all sinners. If we understand worthiness to mean perfection or some kind of clear slate or something like that, then that's impossible. If that weren't true, we wouldn't need a penitential act every time we celebrate the Eucharist. That is a rite of absolution. My point is simply that the penitential act is, it is an absolution of, it's an acknowledgement of our sins. It's a silent confession of it, the calling to mind of our sins. It is an absolution of that sinfulness. So the, the kind of ordinary everyday things that we are encountering and, and permit by way of our sinfulness are accounted for in the penitential act to prepare us to hear the word of God and to come to the table of the Lord. There are some things, though, that are much more grave. You know, did you murder somebody? Did you, are you committing adultery? Are there, you know, these kinds of things that are much more serious that in the old sort of parlance, we would talk about mortal sins. Those are the kinds of things that have recourse to the sacrament of penance prior to communion. But you know, you've raised a point that is worth its own segment of conversation around the weaponizing of the Eucharist, which is it's not our place as ministers of the sacrament to determine whether or not somebody should receive the Eucharist or not. You know, you talked about approaching worthily, unworthily. The, the idea is it's it's about the internal discernment of the individual and to do so with an informed conscience, to do an examination of conscience, to do it perhaps under the you know, pastoral guidance and care of, of, a, of a priest or deacon or minister of the church, however you find it, your spiritual director. But it's not up for the minister of the sacrament to be denying people. And that's how it's often been used. I will say this too about how, you know, this business about needing to be absolutely, you know, as if you need to go to confession five minutes before mass because you might, you know, sin or have an impure thought or lie to somebody before you receive the communion. And so, you you know, you kind of have to like, go right up to it. That sort of thing is dispelled. It was not an issue in, in the 4th century with St. Augustine. It wasn't an issue in the 11th century and 12th century with Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and others. Because, you know, the way that I think Augustine says this well, and Lombard picks this up and sets the tone for a lot of medieval theologians, that when we come to receive the Eucharist, we can receive it, he says, in two ways. The first is the way everybody receives it, sacramentally, he calls it. We receive the Eucharistic sacramentally because Christ is sacramentally present in it. Through the sacrament, what is and appears as bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ, of Christ, not of Jesus, <laughs> of Christ. Second, he says, though, if we are in this quote-unquote state of grace, whatever that means, right, it's another kind of popular term that people throw around without thinking about what they're talking about. We can talk about that some other time. But if you are in another state of openness, maybe one of, of right disposition and so forth, you can also receive, you do not only receive the Eucharist sacramentally, you receive the Eucharist spiritually. And that is a kind of different relationship to it. You know, it doesn't change the Eucharist itself. It, it's about your disposition in receiving it. And I think that's lost in a lot of the modern understandings. You know, it becomes, we hold on to the real presence side of things, the sacramental presence of Christ, but instead of recognizing that God takes care of God's self in terms of 
giving the gift of God's self yet again, even to sinners as we all are, but that we don't need to protect the blessed sacrament from someone we perceive as sinful. And I think that's really the crux of, of the question that you're asking. You know, how is this playing out? It's so seriously inappropriate for people to deny anybody communion. Now, it may be wrong for somebody to approach the Blessed Sacrament because for whatever reason, their belief, their state of kind of moral rectitude, their life choices, whatever, but it's, it's never, and I'm just going to be bold about this, it's never the, the role of the minister to deny somebody that. We don't know their internal state or, or any of these other issues. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time in each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the church. Last episode, we talked about the Eucharist. This time around, we're looking at the sacrament of confirmation. As we've mentioned in the past, confirmation is treated very differently across Christian traditions. In fact, confirmation is treated very differently even within the Roman tradition if you're a baby or a child or a grown-up. For example, though, if we look to our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters, for example, in the Byzantine Rite, confirmation is referred to as holy chrismation which is not just an expletive, holy chrismation. <laughs> and it's administered immediately after baptism. Churches in the Roman Rite typically celebrate the sacrament differently, making it distinct from baptism and Eucharist and often administering it between the ages of 12 and 17, somewhere between junior high and high school. With all these differences in practice, David, we have a lot of things to talk about. Where shall we start? Well, first of all, for those that haven't thought about this in a while, when we're talking about confirmation, what exactly are we talking about? Because I've heard that it involves oil. I've heard that it involves classes. I've also heard that some cases involve getting slapped. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the caucuses again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. So uh, this is going to be difficult. I'm just going to lay it out for you listeners. I'm going to lay it out for you, David. Confirmation, as many sacramental theologians and historians have pointed out, is in effect in the Western Church, the Latin Church. That's, you know, it's not exactly the Roman Church because there are 23 Eastern churches in full communion with the Church of Rome. And so they are Roman Catholics as well. They are Roman churches of other rites, the Syro-Malabar rite, for instance, the Melkite rite, etc. They are fully Catholic, but of a different rite. And uh, like the Byzantine, like the Eastern Orthodox, they celebrate a unified sacrament of initiation. So that's one way that the Eastern Church and we in the Latin Church of the Roman uh, Church uh, differ. And the way that theologians sometimes talk about it in the Latin West is to say that we have a sacrament without a theology. In other words, people don't generally know, including theologians such as ourselves, struggle at times to articulate what is it we're doing exactly, which is the crux of your question, as I understand it, and what is the range and what is it about, and you're right, there's something to do with oil, has something to do with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> there was some tradition of the bishop, I guess, tapping the cheek of a newly confirmed individual, that is not necessary or part of the rite, but to back up, we need to really get back to the 7th century. And in, in the Western church, it wasn't until Christianity exploded in population size that the bishop who had been the one, the, the primary pastor, the primary teacher, the local ordinary of a, a faith community, welcomed new Christians into the Christian community and did so in a singular rite of initiation. So like the Eastern church continues to practice, we in the West actually for a long time did the same thing. So whether you were an infant or a child or an adult, 
Once you were received into full communion of the church, you were baptized, confirmed, and received communion. Much like if you've ever been to the Holy Saturday Easter Vigil service, when adults are brought into full communion of the church as catechumens and, and, and come in seeking baptism and the rest of the sacraments, it's all it all happens in one kind of fell swoop. So Nathan Mitchell, who's one of the probably one of the greatest 20th century American theologians, taught for many years at Yale Divinity School and, and St. John's in Collegeville, a great historian. He wrote an article back in, I think it was in the late 80s, um, and it was titled The Dissolution of the Right of Initiation. And I've always loved that image because it summarizes well what, what's going on here. In truth, in the Western Latin Church, we Roman Catholics typically, that's why I emphasize typically, celebrate them as if they were three separate sacraments, as opposed to three sacramental moments in one rite of initiation. And part of that, going back to the, the 6th and 7th centuries, is is because the bishop, there were too many people coming into the church for the bishop to attend to everything. And so there was a delegation to the presbyters and to the deacons to some degree for the celebration of these sacraments spread out over time. And then the last part, what the Eastern Church calls Holy Chrismation, which we too in the Latin West talk about chrismation, that just means to be anointed with oil, in this case the oil of chrism, is something reserved for the bishop. So it's sort of the, the sealing, the closing of the rite of initiation. Now, one question that I have is, when, when we're talking about these Eastern Rite churches like the Melkites and, and others, are they still celebrating seven distinct sacraments, or do they collapse those three sacraments down into one? No, no. I think we would all agree that it's, it's seven sacraments with one rite. Okay. R-I-T-E, right. Yes. Okay, so you have the, the, the rite of marriage. This is the, the procedures for it, the, the ritual of it, etc. And so if you think about it, that's why, you know, Mitchell calls it the dissolution of the singular rite. And yet it was Pius XII who restored the rite of Christian initiation of adults even before the Second Vatican Council. So that, you know, this was done in the liturgical cycle, it was celebrated in public at the Easter Vigil, and it was a singular rite, but we recognize three sacraments, right? Uh, that's the best answer I can have. The, the, the other thing, too, is historically, it's worth noting that the kind of finalization, though in Lateran four back in the 13th century, there's an acknowledgement of seven sacraments, though later in the 13th century, theologians like Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, these great doctors of the church, acknowledged seven distinct sacraments. It's not really into the Council of Trent where that's absolutely clarified, and that's as a result of the Reformers sort of own revisioning what a sacrament is. Now, if I think about what goes on in baptism, what changes in the believer, I think I have an idea of that. If I think about what happens when I sit down and am praying and am participating in the Eucharist, I think I have a sense of what goes on in that. I will tell you that I have no idea of what happens in confirmation in terms of spirituality, ontology, or even the way that I'm supposed to think about myself or my children as they go through this rite. So you're hitting the nail on the head when it comes to this phrase I used earlier that we theologians oftentimes say it's, it's a sacrament without a theology, meaning that once it's pulled apart from the other two, if you try to think of confirmation as a discrete moment— unrelated to Eucharist and baptism, then it really starts to make little sense. What is the purpose of this, especially when we have such a gap? In the Latin West, we say children can receive communion, the celebration of the Eucharist, once they reach the age of reason, which is give or take seven years old. That's because of our over-intellectualizing, thanks to primarily Thomas Aquinas, 
where in the Eastern Church, you can receive communion, you're communicated, as it were, as an infant, received fully into the Church, confirmed in everything. That means one-year-olds can receive the Blessed Sacrament, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. You don't have to be seven, because there's a difference in how we think about sacramental life and our relationship to this liturgical world. In the West, and again, Thomas is the one who makes this most clearly, he prioritizes the intellect over the will, which means, he says, understanding both in God and in the human person is prior to the choice to love, affectivity, uh, you know, embrace relationship, you know. In other words, he says you have to understand in order to love, whereas others in the Augustinian and Franciscan tradition will say, you can't understand what you do not love, that love proceeds, love takes the primacy as prior to it. And so because the intellect as, as the primary focus won out in the West with the kind of, you know, significant influence of Thomas Aquinas' thinking and worldview, that's where we get this age of reason business, that we have to sort of test our second graders to see, do you know the difference between this piece of bread and that piece of bread? What's significant about it, right? And the truth is, we're talking about something that's, that's a divine mystery. You know, seven-year-olds don't understand it any better than 82-year-olds. You know, who are we kidding? Whereas in the Eastern Church, this idea of being entered into the communion, you know, communion, not just receiving the Blessed Sacrament, but communion through baptism, you know, in the celebration of the Eucharist, is there's a mystagogical dimension to it, which is that we participate in something we don't yet understand fully, but we reflect on the experience in prayer and in community. The mystagogy is this idea of unpacking the mystery that we live and celebrate that is God's gift to us. And so there's an ongoing dim kind of dimension to it. Whereas now, in, if you go back to the West, what we have with this separation of the rite of initiation and placing the confirmation, the last piece of the rite of initiation sort of later in life, because there's a vacuum there, there isn't a good theology for it to stand on its own, we tend to project meaning into the vacuum. And you see this a lot in parishes. You see this in the average person's thought in the pew, including the, the kids, the teenagers who are going to the classes you mentioned earlier. You see it in priests. You see it even in bishops because the theological richness isn't there because it's not meant to stand on its own. So what people project into the vacuum more often than not is it's a rite of passage. You're a quote-unquote adult in the church now. That is not what confirmation is about. And so, though we have, and there are theologians who are working on this, trying to make sense of the separation of the rite of initiation in these three sacraments so spread out, there are efforts to try to make an understanding that is easier to kind of grasp and how it fits into the larger liturgical life of the church and sacramental kind of experience of one's faith journey. But as it stands right now, it's very confusing to people. And so it's seen as, you know, there are detrimental consequences to this. One is that, you know, it's seen as a rite of initiation, um, not in a good way, but like a rite of passage rather than a rite of initiation. And that, you know, in some ways, particularly when you're dealing with teenagers, they see it as their graduation from religious education, which totally torpedoes the idea of lifelong, ongoing catechesis, reflection, education, mystagogy. Like I'm done now, there's nothing else for me to do. Yeah, and and I think that also because we're part of the Abrahamic tradition, we could think of something like a bar mitzvah. And a bar mitzvah has that kind of you are now an adult in the faith kind of thing, a bar or bat mitzvah, I should say. And that's and I'm hearing very clearly you saying that that is not what confirmation is supposed to do. And that in the Eastern Rite examples, 
that's not what it does. That basically it's all one one right of initiation with sort of three steps. You open, you unlock the door, you open the door, you walk through the door all at the same time. Here, you unlock the door, then seven years later, you open the door, and then maybe five or six years later, you walk through the door. And then you get on the other side and go, why did it take so long? Yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's a sort of an experiential, it's like a phenomenological reflection on it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the challenges. You're exactly right. You know, there, a lot of kids may, you know, you have Catholic kids in school with Jewish kids, and the Jewish kids are turning 13, and they have their bar bat mitzvah, and it is a rite of passage of sorts. I mean into a different status within the community. That's not the case with confirmation. And this is another thing that's kind of confusing to a lot of Catholics, which is, well, am I a full member of the church? And the answer is yes. In baptism, you are. But then we also have, you know, these kind of requirements, as it were, and almost a a cursus honorum, this idea of you have to do one thing before another before another. So oftentimes couples who want to get married in, in the Catholic church they'll be required to be confirmed. Or if you want to be a sponsor of baptism, it's required that you're confirmed, which I don't have any problem with in general, except that then again, it now seems like a hoop to jump through as opposed to the completion of one's initiation into this body of Christ. And so the chrismation, the sealing of the gift of the Holy Spirit is what's going on here. And that's exactly what the, the bishop says, you know, you know, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that chrismation is a sealing of the Spirit. It's a completion. Maybe this is the best way we can think about it in a a theologically robust sense. It's a completion of what is begun and continued in baptism and Eucharist. And it's not a final thing. It's not a graduation. It's not a rite of passage, but it's, it's, it's part of something that has already been initiated, has already begun. Is this a missed opportunity? Because I think that uh, oftentimes exactly the dynamic that you're talking about is what I have heard about, and that is teenagers kind of get through this, and then they're kind of cut adrift. Like, there's there's really nothing else for them to connect to in terms of the, the, the next steps of the Catholic tradition. And so I think what I'm hearing you saying is that because there's not a robust theology there, because it is kind of, forgive my language, kind of an orphaned, an orphaned practice in the rite, it doesn't communicate anything that we would like it to communicate, and it communicates a lot of things that we're not intending it to communicate. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I mean, again, it's not a malicious thing. It's not like in the sixth century. It's very organic. I mean, this is why, again, people need to understand that theology and sacraments and the rites of the church develop over time. There's no stasis here. This is not the way we do things. And when we talk, for instance, about the sacrament of penance, you know, reconciliation or confession, that has evolved over 2,000 years as well. How we experience today is not how it was experienced in the fourth century and so forth, or in different places around the world. So with confirmation, here's my proposal, you know, and actually some bishops, some very theologically astute bishops in different dioceses in the U.S. have actually restored the singular rite of initiation and have called for the baptism, communication, and a confirmation or chrismation of infants. There's nothing prohibiting that from being done in the U.S. It's something that, or anywhere in the world, the local ordinary can do. And I think that would open up the possibility of an understanding of initiating into something that is lifelong and ongoing in the way that our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters do. It's also something that the Bishop of Rome could restore. You know, but the problem is then people ask, well, well then what does a bishop do? <laughs> You know, right now a bishop, they only, the only time they typically meet a bishop is when they come around for confirmation or something like that. You know, people say, well, well then, you know, doesn't a bishop have to do it? And the answer is no, absolutely not. 
Notice every Easter vigil, it's a valid confirmation when the local priest is delegated by the church to confirm. That's not a sacrament reserved for the bishop. The only thing a bishop can do sacramentally that a priest can't do is ordain another priest. To me, it's a mystery. I think it requires a kind of paradigm shift. It requires a kind of cultural adjustment. But I think, I, I don't know of a better way, you know, with all due respect to our sacramental and liturgical colleagues, who are trying to make the best and, and try to educate folks and come up with resources to situate confirmation within the larger rite of initiation and in the life of the church as we celebrate the sacraments today, I think the best answer is to, to go back to our sources, that resourcement of the, of the sixth century, and a full restoration of the rite of Christian initiation. And that would mean, you know, that you don't have this awkward thing too. If you're a minister of, of Holy Communion, you know this, you know, you got a kid who looks like they might be in second grade, maybe they're in first grade, maybe they're in second grade, but haven't received communion. And, you know, are you giving them communion? Are they not? Are they coming to receive communion? Are they not? You know, down to the infants who are part of this faith community, instead of this kind of segregation of the congregation, you know, as I'm fond of saying, and you know this, the Pope is no more Catholic than the most newly baptized baby from this past Sunday. And yet we kind of create these hierarchies and separations and categories of, you know, not just who is in and who is out. That's the role of candidates and catechumens as they're journeying into full communion. But once you've entered into full communion, you know, we still have this weird sort of kind of partiality that's playing out. So my advised sort of theological, not hypothesis, suggestion is that we we move in the Latin West to a restoration of the, the single rite of Christian initiation, celebrate these three sacraments as they had been for the first five centuries of the church. Well, if we do that, then folks will know that they heard it here first. This season, we've also been taking the third segment of our episodes to talk about the sacraments of the Catholic Church and to really kind of do deep dives into them. And we thought that it would be appropriate this week, given all of the talk about COVID-19, to talk about a sacrament that frankly confuses me because in part because it goes by so many different names. I have heard it referred to as the anointing of the sick. I have heard it referred to as last rites. I have heard it referred to by the tricky name extreme unction. And so I'm going to ask you, Father Dan, to help me unpack what it means to have this sacrament that is, is it supposed to only be delivered when someone is dying? Can it be delivered when someone is ill? What is this sacrament and what is its function within the church? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that confuses a lot of people because of the way that it had been understood, certainly before the renewal of the Second Vatican Council, where you go back to the sources, where you have an updating, not just to kind of modernize, which is a misconception of the of the ecumenical council, but rather to restore to its fullness what the sacraments mean. There are a number of different terms, some of which are synonyms, some of which are misnomers. So you have, for instance, extreme unction, which is uh, basically an anglicized form of the Latin that refers to the last anointing or final anointing. Extrem is an extremis means kind of the outermost point, and unction simply means to anoint. In the celebration of the sacraments, there are n- numerous anointings that take place over time. At baptism, you're anointed. You're you're anointed at confirmation. If you're ordained, uh, you're anointed uh, in, in holy orders, as I have. And so, you know, you see this at, at various points. Points in, in the life of the church. 
And so for a long time, extreme unction is, is simply to refer to the last anointing. That's oftentimes used synonymously before the council with the so-called last rites. Last rites is a little bit confusing because technically any celebration of the sacraments that's one's last is their last rites. And so you can go to confession, you can receive the anointing of the sick, you can go to mass, you can be baptized, whatever you, whatever, what have you, if that happens, whatever happens before your death is technically the last rites. Though that had been understood that extreme unction, the last anointing would be the last rites. And for a number of reasons we don't have time to get into in the period between the 13th century and the 20th century, there had been sort of a... I would say an atrophying of the theology, uh, a misunderstanding of the anointing of the sick. That phrase I keep using, the anointing of the sick, is the official title. That is the name of the sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church. It is, you know, it, it refers to exactly what what's in the name, and that that's as a result of Pope Paul VI in 1972, the promulgation of the new ritual for the anointing of the sick after the Council. It's exactly what it says. It is an anointing. For any of those who are are sick, it could be mental illness, it can be a physical illness, it does not have to be a terminal illness, it does not have to be for somebody who is close to death, it can be people for a variety of reasons. I've got some anecdotes I can share about the celebration of the anointing of the sick, but I'll, I'll just leave it there in terms of, of the titular question. We don't talk about last rites, we don't talk about extreme unction, though there are some people who continue to use it, it's incredibly misleading because it makes it sound like it's reserved only for those on their deathbed. Well, and I want to get to those anecdotes, but on the way to that, I want to ask a couple of practical linking questions. So we said in the last segment, and we've said often on this show, that the sacraments are not magic, and we're not talking about some kind of magical intervention where God comes at our beckoning and shifts the normal functioning of the world. At the same time, in the in the Gospels, we get accounts of Jesus miraculously healing the sick. And the the way that I understand it is that Jesus passed that power on to the apostles and that that power somehow still stays with us today. So when a person goes to be anointed and they are sick and they are asking for some kind of healing, what should be the expectation of the layperson who is receiving that chrismation at that moment? They shouldn't be expecting a miraculous turnaround of their illness. What should be their right-sized expectation? Yeah, so that's really important. Again, it's it's not magic. It's not a, a spell that is cast to recapitulate somebody into some sort of standard of whole, wholeness or healthiness. Healing means a lot of different things, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Healing can be a healing physically, for sure, um, and we can talk about as a wound heals over time uh, through medical intervention or on its own. You can talk about the healing of a bone that's been set after broken, being broken. You can talk about healing in terms of one's peace of mind. You can talk about healing in terms of turmoil in one's life emotionally or psychically. Uh, you can talk about spiritual healing about the the angst or struggle somebody has, the feeling of distance or brokenness one might have in relationship to God or others. Healing is a multivalent uh, concept, and, and its polyvalence is really important in thinking about the sacrament. The church is very clear. We do not say that the anointing of the sick is for miraculous healing. That is not its purpose. Its purpose is manifold. On the one hand, its purpose is, again, a recognition, an acknowledgement of God who is always already drawing near to the individual who's being anointed. 
even in their pain and suffering, even in their uh, brokenness or their in their desire for healing. It is a sign of solidarity and ministry of the church accompanying this person. Again, it touches on a lot of different things here. Um, the, the late great Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, who was deeply influential at the Second Vatican Council, used to describe the sacraments, and I think very well this way, that they are uh, visible manifestations of that which is always already present. I'm paraphrasing here. And what he means is that we live in a world of grace where God is present to us as spirit. God draws near to us in the church. The gift of grace is always already extended. And what the sacraments do is not hocus-pocus magic, as we've been saying quite a bit today, but rather it is making visible, it's making manifest that which is always already present. So you don't need to be a recipient of the anointing of the sick to have God draw near to you. God is always already drawing near to you. But through the prayers, through the anointing, through the ritual itself, there is a coming to an awareness. There is a a dedicated focus on what is happening in terms of the divinity. So like, if I can share with you the prayer, the priest says, you know, there are two anointings today on the forehead and on the, the hands, the inside of the hands. And the prayer that the priest says, making the sign of the cross with the oil is through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Let me pause there. See, see, it's everything I've already said, right? Through this anointing, may God, it's God who's working, Christ, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing here about, may you be healed in a physical way, may you recover from this illness, may you blah, blah, blah. That's not part of the prayer. And then the second part of the prayer is, may the Lord who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. It's a beautiful eschatological prayer. You know, I remember when I was studying, when I was in the seminary, as, as we might say, you know, now more than way more than a decade ago, time flies. I remember my my professor saying, and I thought this was really true, that that there are some prayers in the rites of the church, the R I T E S of the church, that say it all that do it all. I think of two in particular, and these are the two sacraments of healing. One is the anointing of the sick. One is the the sacrament of penance, of confession. And in both of those prayers, it's again, not about our trying to command something from God, but a calling to mind of the mercy, love, healing, presence, nearness of God in our lives. You know, the, the prayer of absolution is so beautiful to me because it recounts the whole of salvation history. And if I may, if I can just share that, you know, it begins, you know, God, the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son has reconciled the world to himself and sent among us the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. By the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. There's this notion of I absolve you. Right. But but that opening line is a, is a kind of like a one line recounting of salvation history. As I'm kind of paraphrasing this off the top of my head. Right. You know this. Well, actually, I'm not paraphrasing that first part. But I I kind of lost my train of thought in the second part. But the point the point I want to emphasize is also with this anointing. It's so simple. It's two lines. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin save you and raise you up. Not today. Not in ten minutes. Not in any set time, but it's it's this eschatological affirmation of faith. And you mentioned a moment ago that you had a couple of anecdotes to to illustrate this. I'd, I'd be interested if you're willing to share them, to hear one or two of them. Yeah. So there have been instances in which I've been called upon to celebrate the sacrament of the anointing of the sick to those who are near their death. And in that case, it, it is quite literally an extreme unction, right? It's the last anointing. Sometimes people are able to receive communion, and, and our listeners may have heard this Latin term viaticum as well. And viaticum is just a Latin word that says, with us for the journey. And viaticum is 
typically associated with the communion, the the Eucharist that people receive, the Blessed Sacrament, you know, at the last time. And it is for the journey, it is food for the journey, as it were, into the next life. But the truth is, there's a broader conception of that too, which is, you know, Peter Lombard in the 12th century, and you have uh, folks like Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure in the 13th century, and other great doctors of the church have pointed out that the Eucharist is, as Pope Francis often says, not a reward for the good. It's not a gift for the holy and perfect. It is food for the journey. It is a healing remedy. And this is where those who are able to receive communion while ill, and if people are able to, you know, ministers who bring communion to the sick, for instance, that can be lay people as well. They can't celebrate the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, but they can offer viaticum, right? They can offer the Eucharist as food for the journey. And there's a beautiful prayer the uh, service that comes with that even you know for lay people to be ministers of that sacrament i was in high school and uh when i was in high school i brought communion for about a year and a half to a woman in my neighborhood who was dying of cancer and died my senior year in high school and and it was very i, I considered a privilege and an honor and, and a humbling experience to have been with her on a weekly basis i was on sunday afternoons i was working at my home parish at the time as a sacristan and i would lock up the church and everything and i would take the picks which is the little oftentimes gold or silver receptacle the little kind of canister in which one travels out of respect with with the blessed sacrament that was always deeply moving and for her it was incredibly moving too, despite her pain and her suffering, to be able to receive the Eucharist as as food for journey as a, as a healing remedy. Did it heal her of the side effects of you know the chemotherapy and the way that we might think of healing in a colloquial sense? The answer is absolutely not. But did it heal her her heart and mind and soul, her spirit? The answer is yes. And it was very meaningful. It was meaningful to me. It stays with me to this day. I remember after being ordained, I've, going back to anointing of the sick, um, I, some parishes have monthly celebrations of the anointing of the sick. And our uh, local parish here, I know your your home parish, St. Thomas the Apostle, does this, I think, on one of the Sundays of, of the month, where anybody can come up and receive the anointing after the celebration of the Eucharist. And I think that's a wonderful tradition. I think that's great, because it helps to demystify what has been reserved as the last rites for so many years in people's imaginations. And so I was at a parish, my home parish actually in upstate New York, a number of years ago. And one of my best friends uh, and and fan of the show, uh, Andrew Neller, he and his wife and their kids were visiting his parents who live not far from where my parents live and happened to be at mass, this mass that I was uh, celebrating at the parish. And it happened to be, I just happened to be in town on a week where it fell that they were doing a similar sort of thing that St. Thomas does, which is after the closing prayer and closing hymn, you know, the priest would stay in the, in the sanctuary and folks who wanted to receive the anointing of the sick would come up and receive it. And so the pastor and I both, we had, you know, two lines and, and we were both anointing uh, the people of God. Well, my friend Andrew came up with his young daughter, who's a couple years old at the time. And she just had a cold. She just had like a little kid flu. And uh, it was a deeply moving experience to be able to anoint, you know, this little three-year-old with with exactly the prayer that we've shared already. And to recognize that this is, it's it's a beautiful uh, sacrament. It's a beautiful rite. And and the meaning of that is is deeply profound. So, 
not everybody needs to call a priest or a hospital chaplain or something if you have a cold or if you're, you know, you know, th there's no obligation to do that. But if there is an opportunity, you certainly are welcome to take part in that. And I think that's an important thing for our listeners to know that the anointing of the sick is not something reserved for your deathbed. I think sometimes family members and even uh, people who are ill are very nervous when a priest shows up with the oils because they associate it with the so-called last rites that they think that, oh my gosh, I'm going to die or that they're going to be anointed before surgery and that that's some sort of terrible omen. By all means, it is not. That is not good theology. That's not the teaching of the church. So I think that's important to know. I'm sorry, I, I've kind of been on a soliloquy here, a little monologue. David, you, you say some things. Well, I, I want to draw together some themes that we've had throughout the show. And in particular, we, you know, we didn't talk about this so much in the earlier segments, but one of the specters hanging over these kinds of institutional inequities that we talked about in an earlier segment is the idea of the rationing of access to health care. And in particular, the idea that there will, and the New England Journal of Medicine has even gone so far as to talk about a lottery in, in terms of access to the basic ways of keeping people alive with ventilators and things like that. And when we're facing inequities, one of the most dangerous things that we can have is an us versus them mentality. And one of the things that I like so much about everything that you've said about the anointing of the sick is that it's not a magical panacea that suddenly creates miraculous healing. Instead, it is a recognition to the community that this person belongs and is important and that their health is a part of the health of the body. And I think that that is such a great starting place for all of us in terms of grounding our approach to something like the massive obstacles that we're facing right now. If we can simply look at a person who is suffering and not think, I'm in competition with you, but rather you are my brother, you are my sister, we are in this together, and we must find ways together that our family can heal from this, that to me seems the most, the most reasonable, but also the most Catholic of approaches. And so I started out the segment saying that I was confused about the anointing of the sick. You've helped me get some clarification about that, not just in terms of what the sacrament does, but also how the sacrament might be helpful to us in thinking about the present crisis that we're in. So I just want to say, first of all, thank you for, for going on that soliloquy because you've actually given me a chance to think about some of the very valuable ways that this sacrament speaks to us today. It's not an obscure and unclear sacrament. It actually has a very clear message for a time such as this. Yeah, I appreciate that. And and I appreciate the opportunity in, in these regular segments we've been doing to kind of demystify and myth bust some of the, the concerns around the sacraments. I also want to highlight, because I don't want to, to miss the opportunity to let our listeners know, too, just to make it very clear, not only does it not have to be a... Uh, sort of extreme unction, a last anointing or the, or, or the last rites or some kind of, you know, uh, mortal or terminal illness or injury. But, you know, it could be for any reason that anyone feels the need for healing. It, it doesn't even have to be a physical manifestation. It could be for mental health reasons and so forth. It, it's a very capacious uh, sacrament. But I also want to reiterate and or just to make clear that it's not a one-shot, one-time thing. I think this is a concern a lot of people have. It's like, well, I, you know, I was going in for surgery a number of years ago, and the priest chaplain came and anointed me. 
is that a is that does it still count you know is it a one size fits all and the truth is you can be anointed many many times you can be anointed every day and every week i don't encourage that i don't think that's necessary that becomes a bit odd but it's 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 something just to ease the minds and hearts of our listeners you know this is something that is a regular this is something that you can receive um, numerous times throughout your life and for a variety of reasons. The other thing I'll say on the topic of COVID-19, since we're talking about the pandemic as, as the major theme really of this episode, is to mention that this is another area of great pain. It's a great pain for our sisters and brothers who are suffering from uh, COVID-19. It's a great pain for those who are chaplains and, and pastoral ministers, and particularly pastors and priests and bishops, because you know, this is one of those sacraments where there's real physical touch. And I know that's a complicated topic, particularly in the contemporary church, but it's also an important thing because there's a recognition of our corporeality, our bodiliness. Just an interesting historical note that before the Second Vatican Council's renewal and re- uh, reform and rest- restoration of the, the seven sacraments, there was a lot more anointing. It was like, because this, the symbolism was good which was an anointing of all the different senses, as it were, ears for hearing, eyes for seeing, you know, mouth and nose and hands for touch. It's, it's been simplified and reduced to the forehead and, and to the hands. And that's a beautiful symbol too, because when you're ordained a priest, you're anointed in the hands, you know, when you're ordained a bishop, anointed in the hands. When you are baptized, you're anointed on the forehead. The last thing I'll say by way of uh, anointing of the sick trivia is that there are three oils that are consecrated during during Holy Week by the local bishop. They're consecrated every year. One is chrism, and that is, uh, it has this very beautiful smell. And so if you ever ever had a baptism of a baby <laughs> or an adult, but uh, particularly babies, parents and godparents notice this, that the, their babies smell like, um, like beautiful potpourri or something like that, a very herbal kind of scent. And that has to do with, with the, the mixture, a very particular mixture that's, that's added to the oil that's consecrated for chrism. Chrism is used for baptism. It's also used for holy orders. And when we get to holy orders, I can say more about that. Um, There's a second oil that's consecrated called the oil of catechumens. And that's what's used when, uh, oh, I should say chrism also is is used at at confirmation. And the oil of catechumens is used in baptism. There's two anointings at baptism, one with chrism, one with with the oil of catechumens. And then the third has no scent. It's, It's kind of just straight olive oil that's consecrated, and this is the oil of the sick. What's interesting about the the consecration of the oil of the sick is that any priest, out of necessity, can consecrate oil for that purpose. So that's a little tidbit. You know, there's the priests can't consecrate chrism or the oil of catechumens. There's no need to. Those are in the parishes. But in an, an emergency situation, there are prayers that are included in the rite of the anointing of the sick for a priest to take ordinary olive oil from your kitchen, for instance, put it in a little bowl, bless it in a, such a way that it becomes uh, the oil of the sick and can be used for the anointing of the sick. So for those of you who are nerds who like that kind of trivia, I hope that was useful. For those who aren't, my apologies. Well, I'm so thankful to get the chance to talk to you about this, partly because it helps me to understand much better this sacrament that frankly was confusing to me. And so thanks for taking the time. Also, I just want to make sure 
to say before we depart how how much you have been in my prayers. I'm so thankful for your friendship. I'm looking forward to when we can gather face to face again. And I, I hope that you continue to be healthy and safe. And I say that also to all of our listeners, that we are praying for you and that we hope that you continue to be healthy and safe and that your loved ones are protected during this time. And if you are feeling fearful, know that we are too. And just know that we, we are in this with you in all of this. So far, we've talked about baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, and the anointing of the sick. And today we're going to talk about the sacrament of reconciliation. Now, like the anointing of the sick, this sacrament is known by many names. It's oftentimes called confession. You may also have heard it referred to as the sacrament of penance. And that might be a good place to start, Dan. What should we be calling this sacrament? The technical name is the sacrament of penance or the rite of penance. It is fine to call a confession. That's the way most people talk about it. That's not technically correct, but that's a component of the rite itself. We can say more about that in a minute. People also use the phrase, the sacrament or rite of, of reconciliation. That's also a component as well, one might think. And so I think it's okay to say that, but it's it's important to realize that both the term confession and reconciliation are euphemisms that are describing either an intended goal or what one's actually doing as part of the ritual. But the formal sacrament is called the rite of penance. Now, I want to make sure that I understand the structure of this as a layperson. So I am living in the world and I inevitably do things that cause me to fall into sin. Some of those sins are minor sins and some of them are major sins, and we can maybe talk about the technical language around that. And then I need to examine my conscience as I'm preparing to go into this sacrament. And then entering the sacrament itself, there's a point where I say to a priest the things that I think that I have done. I may or may not have a conversation with the priest. At that point, the priest gives me tasks to do. That's the penance part, like say some Hail Marys or something. And then the priest also is doing something called an absolution. And then I'm free to go back into the world and sin again. So first of all, do I have the, well, the, the major pieces? <laughs> I think you just named a, a stereotype, a critique of Catholicism. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm talking yeah. about kind of the lay understanding of how this works. Yeah. So where where does that lay understanding fall short and what, what correctives so, do we need? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And, <laughs> and I think you summarized well what a lot of people think about. I, I think it's useful to use what is, is kind of classic terminology in this case, the, the venial and mortal sin difference. That's useful here when talking about the sacrament of penance because venial sins are considered by even by definition, the etymology of the term are these kind of lesser little sins. They're the kind of stumblings that we regularly, daily, many of us hourly fall into. It's it's the lies, it's the 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 uncharitable thought or the thing we say, the the insult, these kinds of things, the selfishness, the self centeredness, the rejecting God in various ways, and these kinds of things. And it's important to realize, you know, a lot of folks, particularly those who are raised in such a way to be especially scrupulous, are very, very concerned about whether they could approach the Eucharist, you know, to communion, if they have not gone to the sacrament of penance beforehand. And it's important to realize that no human person, the church teaches, no human person is worthy to approach 
the Blessed Sacrament. You know, that's just it's a it's a common denominator from the Pope all the way down to the you know the newly the most newly communicated seven year old. And the reason is because we we are finite, we are sinful, we we are subject to Saint Augustine says to the consequences, the effects of original sin. That is, our our will is kind of weighed down by concupiscence that we're inclined to sin. Paul talks about this, of course, you know, you know, he knows what he shouldn't do, but he does it anyways, this kind of stuff. We all know that feeling, which is exactly why part of the celebration of the Eucharist begins with a, a rite of penance. It is what opens up with, uh, with a little prayer of absolution, right? You know, whether it's the Kyrie alone, oftentimes kind of in daily, pr- daily mass, like Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, or whether it's the confidior, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my sisters and brothers, there's a public confession. The prayer afterwards is a prayer of absolution. And that is to make sure that we all acknowledge our sinfulness. We call it to mind. We use it, as you rightly say, as a moment of examination of conscience in order to prepare ourselves, as the introduction to the rite of penance goes, to prepare ourselves to celebrate these mysteries. And so that's really important to realize. And and we pray, of course, before approaching the Blessed Sacrament that we're not worthy to enter under, you know, to have the Lord enter under our roof to, to come to us, but but because it's the will of God, right? Only say the word in the voice of the centurion, only say the word, and my soul shall be healed, we shall be healed. This idea that God invites us, though we are unworthy, we don't do anything to merit that grace in, the, in Christ's presence. So that's one thing, the context in general. Mortal sin is something where it's it's of a grave nature, it's conscious and deliberate, it varies. There are different categories. I think one way to think about this is it's it's very serious sin. And some of those things the church teaches require the celebration of the of the sacrament of penance in order to prepare oneself dispositionally, uh, spiritually to, you know, to be in full communion with the church. And by church, I mean the whole body of Christ, the communion of saints. And that would be things like murder. That'd be things like adultery. That'd be things, you know, of that sort. It's very hard to make a generalized statement. So I will say this, that 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 distinction is important because some people get very caught up on, you know, well, you know, I said a really mean thing to my coworker this week. Can I go to communion or do I need to go to confession first? And the, and the answer is it depends. <laughs> you know, every case is, is, is a bit different, but that's where that distinction is helpful. Well, let me let me ask a follow on question. So having sort of grown up in a very Protestant environment, I think that there's a real skepticism about the notion of about the role of a priest. And oftentimes I'll hear my Protestant friends say, all you need is to ask Jesus and Jesus has done it all for you. So when a Catholic goes to confession and when they are, when they are in the sacrament of penance and the priest is providing forgiveness and absolution, on whose behalf is the priest doing that? Who is the priest representing at that moment? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, you, you phrased it exactly right, that there are a lot of factors at play here. I, I think it's worth stepping back for a moment to realize that, it, as we've said before in other segments about the sacraments, each of the sacraments is accomplished, is performed, as it were, by Christ. So who, quote, forgives sins, end quote, Christ does. Who baptizes, Christ does. Who anoints, Christ does. And this is where the Thomist notion of secondary causality is really important, right? God is the primary cause who works through secondary causes. When it comes to forgiveness of sins, the priest is not forgiving anything. The priest does not forgive anybody. The prayer of absolution is not a prayer of forgiveness. I that's that's a complete misunderstanding of what's going on here. Absolution itself etymologically and theologically means to dissolve, to remove, to break 
as it were. So absolution is the breaking of the chains that weigh a penitent down. So what is the guilt? What is the oppression? What is the, you know, the, the kind of neuroses? What are the things that we carry with us? The, the weight on our consciences, we might say, that is what's being removed. Absolution is about a removal, a breaking free from these chains of, of, of oppression that come with sin. The forgiveness has already taken place in Christ. And uh, this is this is you know where we have to meet the Protestants of various stripes kind of part way and say no 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 you're right only God forgives sins but the role of of the minister of the sacrament is to preside over this sacramental celebration so here's a couple other things if I can just walk through the sacrament very briefly because. I think a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, most second graders are trained to say a formula when they go into a confessional or, or, or approach a priest for the celebration of the sacrament. And they say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been blah, 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 blah. That is not in the right at all. That is completely made up. That is not part of the sacrament. And I'm sorry if that is scandalous to people. I, like you, was raised to say that. It's, it's a formula that kind of I think to look at it in terms of a glass half full situation, what's nice about it is it, it puts some people at ease because if they know that phrasing, if they know that formula, they can get in kind of talking when they're dealing with something that is very vulnerable. And so they're, they're, I understand the psychological benefit to that. However, the sacrament is presided over by the priest. And the way that the the right of penance is outlined, the priest is the one who begins and begins by invitation and says, you know, welcome, welcome to the sacrament. You know, here I'm offering a general structure, right? It can be very, it can be very ad hoc, but it's a, it's an inviting of the penitent in, recognizing in that moment, it could be said explicitly, I prefer to do that if I'm presiding, you know, over the sacrament of penance to say, we acknowledge God's forgiveness and love and mercy already always present, and that you're here because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God's grace working in your heart and in your conscience. And then it could be something as simple as an invitation like, and, and what brings you here today? That's often the phrase that I use. And that's what's called for. And at that moment, there can be, as you said earlier, a conversation, but the penitent oftentimes, and this is, there's nothing wrong with this, slips into the bless me, Father, for I have sinned routine. That's fine. That's fine. But you don't have to do that. You can go right into saying, you know, this has been weighing on my conscience. This has been bothering me. These are the things that, these are my sins that I'm carrying. They're, you know, the baggage that weighs me down, right? So there could be then after that, that's the confession part of the sacrament of penance. Then there is you know, a moment for some pastoral counseling, some response, and it could be brief, it could be lengthy, there could be a recommendation, well, why don't, maybe you need to see a spiritual director, is this an ongoing thing, is this, what are the circumstances of your life, these kind of questions to help contextualize it. Then there is a uh, an assignment of penance, and, and this is, again, this is confused sometimes within the Catholic community and by our Protestant sisters and brothers who don't understand the, the dynamics here, they assume it's a quid pro quo. If you say these 10 Hail Marys, then God forgives you. And that is not the point. That is a heresy that is 100% untrue. The penance is a sign of thanksgiving and reparation and response to try to make whole 
this relationship. This is where reconciliation comes in, in the celebration of the sacrament of penance, that you want to reconcile with God, with one another, with oneself and creation. And to do so, it's sometimes symbolic in terms of prayer or actions or some, or, or withholding from something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can talk about how that works and how one comes to that and so forth. But that's, that's where the penance comes in. That's where reconciliation comes in. Then the penitent, that is the person who's come to confession, is invited to offer a prayer of contrition. And that is, you know, in their own voices. It, again, as second graders, many of us who are cradle Catholics, we're taught a, a kind of prayer that we could remember. That's perfectly fine. It's also completely ad hoc. There's no formal prayer. There are a lot of ones that we all learned, and those are fine. But it's simply what's expected of us, what's what's required in that moment is contrition, to acknowledge that I am really sorry for what I have done. I'm really sorry for what I have failed to do. Sound familiar, doesn't it, right? And then the priest offers a prayer of absolution. The prayer of absolution, again, is a beautiful prayer. We talked about it last week. It goes like this, God, the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. By the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the first part of that prayer, I love that prayer so much. The first part is a recollection of salvation history. Who is working in the world? Who is forgiving sins? God. God is Christ. God is Holy Spirit. The second part of the prayer is recognizing the church's ministry and responding to those who are broken, those who have sinned, those who have been sinned against, in the notion of reconciliation, right? That through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace, not just forgiveness. God's granting the pardon, but may God also give you peace, a healing, and that I, as the minister on behalf of the church, am absolving you of the guilt of the weight that carries you down, the chains that hold you down. That's what's going on there. It's a healing sacrament. It's not a sacrament of guilt. It's not a sacrament of punishment. It's not a sacrament of judgment. And this is something Pope Francis has said over and over again. It is a healing sacrament, and it's partnered with the anointing of the sick. I love so much of that, and thank you for taking the time to really spell that out for us. I have a couple of technical questions to follow that. I think, you may. <laughs> I think if people have a mental picture of confession. They may have a traditional notion of a confessional, which is a physical space that separates the penitent from the priest with kind of a rote screen. And part of that is, I guess, and I'm going to scare quote this, anonymity. My experience of going through the sacrament has often been that I'm sitting in a chair face to face with a priest. First of all, what's the difference between that kind of old school style of anonymity and the face to face approach? Does it change anything about the sacrament? And is one better or more legit than the other? So there are actually several forms of the sacrament of penance. What you're describing in both the face-to-face and behind-a-screen form is a one-on-one celebration of the rite of penance or the sacrament of penance. And that's a relatively new iteration of the form of the sacrament. To really see the evolution of the sacrament, you have to go back to the 4th century, to the 300s. And this is before Constantine kind of legalized, sort of like legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana. He decriminalized Christianity. It wasn't official. It just wasn't a crime. Uh, It wasn't going to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. Prior to that, there have been waves of persecutions 
similar to what we talked about in an earlier segment where you in in what would i think fairly be called an abusive situation were raised and reared in a sense to constantly be on guard about the communists coming and questioning you what would you say there was a similar sort of reality uh in practice in, in the early centuries of christianity where people were being forced to renounce their faith or to die martyrs defending it in a variety of contexts and the question surfaced what happens if somebody denies their faith They've already been baptized. They deny their faith. Can they ever be reconciled back to the community? And so this is where the sacrament of of penance and where we get the notion of reconciliation really comes to the fore. For many, many centuries, it was a public communal celebration sacrament where oftentimes it was public knowledge already that somebody had committed this sin of apostasy of denying their faith or something like that. And there were processes that are modeled in the, in the one-on-one version of the sacrament, which most people are familiar with today. You know, there was an acknowledgement of contrition. There was a penance that was placed on them. Oftentimes, it was like what you see in the RCIA process of of being dismissed, you know, from the celebration of the Eucharist or, or these sorts of things, right? They're, they They take many different forms over the years. This notion of one-on-one confession and the kind of anonymity that you're describing is really a monastic practice that's oftentimes credited to the Celtic islands and Ireland in particular, where there is a combination over the centuries that developed of quasi-spiritual direction, quasi-sacrament of penance, less a, a case of anonymity and more for the case of privacy. The rude screen that separates the penitent from the confessor you know, there are a lot of different reasons. I'm not an expert on the history of this, and so I don't know for certain, but I do know that there are a number of different reasons why something like that developed. Part of it might have been anonymity, but part of it also was the kind of preservation of the, of the kind of mystique of what's going on in terms of salvation history and so forth. Confessing your mortal sins is a pretty significant experience. And so all of those factors come together. All of that is to say those are two ways historically that the sacrament has been celebrated. A third way is called general absolution, and this is something that is still in practice. It's it's oftentimes called the third form of the rite of penance. Um, most bishops are, are incredibly hesitant to grant permission to use it, although Pope Francis, we should say, during the pandemic of coronavirus, has given permission to offer a general absolution you know, in terms of the church worldwide. And and general absolution is either out of pastoral necessity or out of immediate emergency and urgency. So the kind of most common example of where you would use general absolution is you're at a, at a war front, a battle line in, in World War II. You've got all these troops here. You have a, a priest chaplain, and he offers the prayer of absolution over all of the soldiers. And, you know, God forbid that they should die before they're able to go to the sacrament of penance, et cetera, et cetera. One of the catches with that form is that the expectation is that when you are able at the earliest sort of convenience or ability to go to private confession where you can personally confess your sins, that's expected of you. But should you die or something happen that you're unable to get to that point, and here you would see with the pandemic today, you know, folks are in social isolation, they're in quarantine, they may not have that opportunity before they die or for a very long time. And so the the absolution, the, the celebration of the sacrament is completely valid and licit, but there is that little hook given the, the development of the sacrament over the centuries. 
So I, I want to ask a couple more questions, and one is kind of theological and biblical, and the other is simply aesthetic. So let's start with the theological biblical one first. I mentioned earlier that I'm in conversation with a lot of Protestants, and something that comes up with some regularity is an interesting passage from the Bible that says, the offense against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. And so let me ask you, uh, just in a general sense, are there any sins that a priest can't forgive, or is this sacrament universally applicable to anything that can occur? Good question. And uh, in, in my favorite German word, jein, yes and no. So there are canonically certain mortal sins that are that are, and here's a technical term, the absolution from which is reserved to the local ordinary, which means that there are some sins, and, and probably the most kind of common one is, is abortion, is legally, canonically reserved for the bishop. Okay, so what does this mean? That means all things remaining equal, your diocesan priest, if you go to confession and you confess to this sin, there has to be permission granted from the chancery, from the bishop, for the priest to offer absolution in response to that. In other words, that's what, what the recourse to the bishop typically means. However, pastorally speaking, there are, in most dioceses, the bishops, when they grant faculties for a priest, that means a diocesan priest or a priest of another community who's ministering in that diocese, gets faculties in the diocese in which he resides. Those faculties, it's like a license to, val uh, to licitly celebrate the sacraments. And usually that's something that's delegated to all the priests who receive faculties. So there are very few dioceses where bishops actually reserve that right to themselves. So that's one thing. The second thing is there are some religious orders that are canonically exempt from that, and I am part of one of them. So a Franciscan friar, any, any of the mendicant orders of the big O, so the Carmelites, the Franciscans, the Augustinians, Indians, Trinitarians, we are, by virtue of church law, we can absolve from those sins that are ordinarily reserved for the bishop. And the history there is long and, and complicated, and it's, it's, it's not really important other than to say that some of us, this was a, a big kind of funny thing when we were in, in seminary. And, uh, you know, we had, you may remember when we were in Los Angeles, my, my classmate, Tom Gibbons, who's a Paulist, and you know, Tom was in this class and there was another Paulist and there were a couple others. And, and we Franciscans, and, and I had a couple Carmelite classmates and Carmelites teased the Paulists about this because they are subject to this like diocesan priests are, but we as mendicant uh, friars are not. What does that mean? Practically speaking for most Christian women and men, nothing. That's something we need to worry about. It's never anything you should worry about. And in most cases, it's not a concern at all. So there is nothing that cannot be absolved if somebody comes with contrition. And I think that's an important thing. It's something Pope Francis has highlighted a lot in his ministry as Bishop of Rome that there have been, and I've heard of so many horror stories of people who have felt judged, who have been verbally attacked or made to feel worse going into the confessional. To me, there is, there's probably no greater sin. That is something that should be reserved for the bishop to absolve alone. And Pope Francis has pointed this out. It is not our place to judge. I've often thought it is the greatest sign of the Holy Spirit twofold in the celebration of the sacrament of penance. One is that anybody would step foot into the confessional or approach a priest for the sacrament. That is the sign that the Holy Spirit is already working in them. We don't need to say or do anything to make them feel any worse. You don't need to know the details either. This is another thing that's a misconception. This is not an opportunity to ask 20 questions. The point is, this is something between the penitent 
you know, and God, and that our role is to preside over the celebration of this sacrament. The second thing is, and I'll speak from my own personal experience as the presider of the sacrament, as, as a confessor, which is there's no greater sign of the Holy Spirit for me than to prepare myself to celebrate the sacrament by saying, get out of the way, Dan. And, and that it's, you know, you, there's nothing, and I tell my, my students this, the students who are preparing for ordination, there's nothing that you can do to prepare yourself for the celebration of the sacrament. You can think a million ways about what if somebody comes in and says this, what if I'm in this situation and that happens, you just don't know what's going on in people's lives. And so the only way that you're able to do or say, or to be present in any kind of meaningful way is when the Holy Spirit, when God is the one who's doing the work. And so that is, that's really important. And I think it's important for our listeners who are ordained to hear and to be reminded of. And again, I'm just really echoing Pope Francis. And it's important, I think, for our listeners who are penitents to hear as well, to know you're right, that this is not a, a source of judgment. This is not a place to be cross-examined by the presider, by the priest. This is a place where you should experience healing like you would with the anointing of the sick. Well, there's a, so much more that I want to ask you about this, but for the purposes of time, perhaps we should bring this to a close. But on the way out, I have one more question, and it's an aesthetic question. I have noticed when I have participated in the sacrament that oftentimes the priest will wear a purple stole. Is there anything significant about that, or am I just noticing something that priests always do? So, technically... The stole color doesn't matter, and it probably should be white. However, traditionally, and this is a carryover from really before the Second Vatican Council, where there was a lot more emphasis on violet as the kind of color of penance, that the purple stole is what is traditionally used. That's basically carried over, but it does not matter. And again, to avoid magical thinking, the priest can hear a confession and absolve a penitent, even if he's not wearing a stole or a Roman collar or uh, you know his habit or anything like that. It's not what causes you know the uh, the grace of Christ working uh, in that moment or the spirit's presence but that's that's sort of the background is that you know just like during the season of lent and during the season of advent we have the violet color is the liturgical color uh, it's a color of penance it's a color of kind of asceticism and so i think that's why it's typically used though it's it's more out of tradition than it is out of theological or liturgical significance. One of my favorite memories, now that you mention it, is the, the priest that helped to bring me into the faith, Father Richard at Vanderbilt. One of the confessions that I did with him was in his study there in the chancery, and he was just in shirt sleeves, and so was I. And it, it, felt, it felt really human and very warm, <laughs> which I don't often associate with the sacrament, but it was nice to have one of my early confessions be exactly that, an informal effect fair without a lot of trappings to really help me understand this is a very human-sized thing that we're talking about. continuing this series on the sacraments, but because this is our last regular episode of the season, we bring you a double feature, a buy one, get one free, a two for one deal. We begin the segment with the sacrament of marriage. According to the code of canon law, which governs the practices and disciplines of the church, the sacrament of matrimony is said to result in a special experience of grace. Canon 1134 says, quote, 
from a valid marriage arises a bond between the spouses by which its very nature is perpetual and exclusive. Furthermore, in a Christian marriage, the spouses are strengthened and, as it were, consecrated for the duties and the dignity of their state by a special sacrament. Many Catholic Christians think of ordination, uh, something I've experienced and we'll talk about after we talk about marriage, as conferring upon one certain, quote, duties and dignity. And yet marriage, too, is a special sacrament, a special state, and the formation of a covenant, a bond between two people. Given that one of us, Francis Effect hosts, is married and one is not, and if you haven't, after six seasons, figured out which is which— you have not been paying attention. It seems very fitting that the married podcast host should get our conversation started. And so with that, David, I am disclosing that you, in fact, are married. In addition to your perspective as a theologian, you also have personal experience. So how do you understand the sacrament of marriage? Where do we begin um, here? So I want to start by saying that I think that the process of discerning whether or not one should become married, I think is as weighty a discernment as one deciding if one should devote one's life to a religious order or whether one should devote one's life to... Wait a minute, you're supposed to discern that? <laughs> I, I just walked in accidentally into one building, and next thing I know, 15 years later, I'm a friar. I'm just kidding. Well, and I think some, I think some people get into marriage that way, too. They think that somehow going through the institutional activity of getting married will somehow confer upon them the wisdom of being married. And for me, my life has certainly not worked that way. I got married late, I guess, in terms of how people normally do this. So I was in my mid-30s when I got married and had been through a number of relationships, but also had been through a number of years of therapy and other kinds of adjustments to try and uh, get a handle on some of the aspects of my past that were continually in both not only my romantic relationships, but also in my friend relationships and my professional relationships were continually cropping up and sort of cutting me down in various ways. And so I will say that I think that marriage, if I were to give one sentence, I would say that marriage is a collection of habits. And the habits that you enact and the habits that you live in your single life will carry over into your married life. And so you need to be careful and have careful attention to the kind of habits that you are inculcating. If you live a life of self-centeredness, that habit will not be cured by merely getting married. It will merely make for, at least initially, a very bad marriage. And so I think that marriage is an institution where a person is obliged to be socially responsible for those around them. And I think that that's, that's an incredibly important thing, particularly for individualist, self-centered Americans to be reminded of. And so that's my initial kind of foray into what marriage is. But I'd love your perspective as a person who perhaps has married and counseled people in marriage, or at least has been in the process of observing people becoming married. Yeah. Well, I'll say one thing too. I mean, what you're describing just now, which I think is a very important kind of human-centered, emotionally-centered focus on discernment, particularly with an eye toward marriage, is important because you hear these stereotypes, right, about people saying, well, there's this aspect of my fiance or partner or something like this, but I'm going to change them. When we get married, it's going to change. And I, I see you shaking your head because it, it, it's just not true. We are who we are. And so we can change, but but the person has to want to change, right? And then that ha there has to be a focus there that the marriage itself, the act of marriage, the sacrament of marriage doesn't change people in that way. And that's also true about holy orders, which we'll get to later. But I think, you know, 
and from the vantage point of the sacrament itself, so you, you've really spoken to the discernment about entering into marriage and, and finding the partner, finding the person with whom one would enter into this marriage. I think there's some things that might be worth talking about from a theological perspective for our listeners. So they might be surprised to find out, for instance, that the church actually came to the marriage game relatively late, historically speaking, that it wasn't really until the, the after really about a thousand years that the, the church really got into the so-called marriage business. Now, this raises questions. Does this mean that marriage was not a sacrament or is a sacrament or wasn't a sacrament and then became one? Or what? what's the story here? Because marriage was for the better part of a thousand years at least, and in many parts of the world still today, a, a civil action, right? It was a contractual agreement. And that marriage, another thing that's that's worth noting too, and, and this came to mind as you said, that I have married a lot of people, and that is not true. <laughs> Donald Trump has married a lot of people and divorced them. And I've married nobody. And I mean that literally and figuratively. I have presided over a number of marriages, but it's misleading to think about a priest or a deacon who is the official or the normative minister of the church. And I take that back. They are not the ministers. The priest is not the minister of the sacrament of marriage. The ministers of the sacrament of marriage are the couple themselves. The, the, The spouses are the ministers of the sacrament. The deacon or the priest is the presider. One presides over the celebration of the sacrament, but we don't, quote, do anything. We witness on behalf of the church the sacrament that's being officiated. And it's, again, the ministers, you know, of the sacrament are the husband and wife. There's so much there to unpack. And one of the things that struck me as you were saying all this was, if we look at the Gospel of John, for example, one of the, I I guess, the the inaugurating moment of Jesus's ministry is the wedding at Cana and the miracle that he performs at the wedding at Cana. That's his first sort of public act in terms of his, his ministry. And and oftentimes that's pointed to by people as, you know, how central marriage is to the Christian experience. I really like the historical corrective you just gave us to say that the church has largely left that to the civil realm, at least for the first millennium, and has become increasingly involved in that in the last thousand years. I think that that one thing that we might want to do then for our listeners is ask, what is the difference in the eyes of the church between a civil marriage and a sacramental matrimony? Is, is, is there a distinction in their eyes, and what would that distinction be? So it, it gets a little bit complicated, and it's where the kind of canonical distinctions come in. It's actually so complicated, the various kind of elements here, that we really don't have time to get into it, because there are questions about what is the nature of, let's say, two baptized people entering into marriage. That is recognized and presumed to be a sacramental marriage as such. So even if it takes place in a civil context, it's recognized by the church, I should say, in in a vague way. You know, here I'm, I'm generalizing. And there's a process called convalidation, where it's kind of recognized in a formal way by the church. So you could be civilly married and that the presumption is one of a of a valid marriage between two baptized persons, but it can be convalidated, right? That is co-validation by a minister of the church, like a priest or a deacon, in, in a more formal process. That's very common, particularly in places like Central and South America, where for you know a number of reasons, people might want to enter into civil marriage for legal reasons, for for all sorts of uh, 
expedient reasons, but maybe have to delay the celebration in, in the kind of church sense with a formal ceremony and, and, and reception and these kinds of things. It's also common in lots of other settings as well, but it does have an impact on, for instance, the role of annulments and, and the kind of what is considered inhibiting of a valid sacramental marriage if somebody were to be married, civilly divorced, and remarried or married in the church. So it does get kind of complicated. In order to avoid getting into the, the complex messiness, perhaps we can simply say that there is a civil action that is called marriage that confers a legal status. There is a sacramental action called matrimony or marriage. They are oftentimes referred to with the same word, but as you're saying, the combination of who's involved, what their disposition is, what their baptismal past is, all will affect kind of how the church is viewing that in terms of its status as a sacramental marriage under canon law. First of all, have I just heard that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it can sound very dry and legalistic or juridical when we talk about canon law, but that's really where, you know, it's true in a sense with all the sacraments. Where do you see the matter and form, right? So, you know, that's that's the Thomistic, that's really kind of uh, an Aristotelian medieval synthesis for an analyzing whether something is valid versus whether something is licit. And so we've talked about this before on the podcast with the other sacraments, you know, a priest who is validly ordained but may not have faculties or they're removed, let's say, because they've left active ministry in the priesthood voluntarily or because they've had the faculties removed because because of you know uh, clergy abuse or that sort of thing, you know they still validly celebrate the sacraments because they're validly priests and you can't be unordained. But they may not licitly or with with authority, you know, celebrate the sacraments. So that's a, an important distinction. There's a similar kind of thing that that's operative when we think about the sacrament of marriage. It gets complicated by the fact that people say, well, wait a minute, we weren't married in the church. Let's say you and Kira, your wife, you know, you're, you're both baptized Christians. If you went down to the town hall or something like this to the city court to enter into civil marriage, the people would say, well, wait a minute, it didn't put, take place in the church. Is it, it's not valid. Well, except that you two are the valid ministers of the sacrament. And if you enter into that covenant as baptized Christians, you know, it may not be convalidated, right? See, the convalidation is important. It's with the church's blessing and reception. Not, you know, it's not now making it valid. It's also, you know, it's a co-validation with the acknowledgement that it's already a valid sacrament. I just want to tell listeners my own story quickly, because my wife and I were married in her childhood church, which is a Presbyterian church in Washington, Pennsylvania. And at the time she was becoming Catholic, but was not yet Catholic. So we were married in the church civilly and with a minister of, of the Presbyterian tradition she later became Catholic, and that marriage was convalidated. It was uh, the the term, the technical term, is a radical sanation to heal it at the root. And so, our marriage that was outside of the church, I'm scare quoting there, was radically sanated to now be recognized as a valid sacramental Catholic marriage. So. When you have a valid sacramental Catholic marriage, can that ever be dissolved? I think that's a question that oftentimes gets really convoluted in people's minds. Well, before I get to that, because that's a great question, I, I just want to highlight, too, that there are also dispensations that can be granted by the local ordinary, by the bishop. So, you know, a baptized 
Christian, a, a baptized Catholic, marrying somebody of another religious tradition. Before the Second Vatican Council, that that could happen, but often happened with great scandal. You might have heard of grandparents or great-grandparents who were not allowed to have a, a wedding in the church. They had to be married so in the rectory, you know, even between Christians, like a Catholic and a Lutheran or something like that, or in your case, you know, a Catholic and a Presbyterian or what have you. But that has subsequently changed for non-Christians and Catholics, for Catholics and, and Christians of other denominations and this sort of thing. So there are ways in which one can be dispensed of the uh, what's called ordinary form. Uh, it's a dispensation of form. And, and again, it gets very, very technical and we don't have time for that. But without getting into all the great technicalities that your question just now raised, the short answer is no. From the church's perspective, a valid marriage is a valid sacrament. And with every sacrament, it cannot be undone. That's the internal logic here, right? We've talked about this in terms of baptism. You cannot be unbaptized. You can choose to disaffiliate. You can choose not to live up to your baptismal vocation. The same thing with the sacrament of penance. You're validly absolved. You cannot, you know, you don't get, that doesn't get reapplied (laughs) after the fact, you know. You can't be unconfirmed. You can't be unordained. You can't be unmarried. That's the internal logic if you understand the celebration of matrimony as a valid sacrament. So what is the role of annulments? What the hell is an annulment then? By definition, an annulment is a, is a statement. It's a stated act, just like we've talked about excommunication before, right? Excommunication isn't something one does to somebody else. Excommunication, in a formal sense, is a confirmation or acknowledgement of something that has already happened, something that is. An annulment is the same thing. One doesn't. A divorce is something you do, right? You make a contractual agreement to separate. That's a divorce. That's a legal thing. An annulment is a legal statement of something that already is. You know, that's true both civilly and canonically. Civilly, they mean the same thing, actually, which means that a valid marriage did not take place. This is why annulment, the process of, of annulling a marriage is so painful because ultimately, and why, why for pastoral reasons, a lot of people resist this, and, and it's very understandable why they would because let's say a couple is together for 20 years. They were validly married, right? That's the presumption. By the way, the church also presumes that the marriage is valid. So the the, the presumption is that of validity. Annulment is, the process of annulment is, is finding basically, and here I'm going to be a bit crass, so I apologize, but basically finding a loophole that would invalidate the matter, matter or form. An example of this would be duress. So in order for a marriage to be valid, both partners have to voluntarily of their own free will, this is where the exchange of vows comes in, right? Where they have to want to and open with openness agree to enter into this covenant, into this marriage. If one of them is doing it under duress, and that could be conditioned by a number of things. This is where canon lawyers will do a series of interviews and and look at the whole relationship and its previous, you know, iterations and all these kinds of things and what's what's happened around what happened before the marriage and at the the marriage and so forth. Because it let's say, you know, the so-called shotgun wedding, if you're getting married because you fear <laughs> you're under pressure from the your father-in-law to do that 
that might raise to the level of duress and that you didn't validly enter into that marriage, right? You didn't willfully do it. And therefore it's invalid. It's, it's, it's an, they can state an annulment that it didn't technically take place. Now, what's difficult about that is, let's say you've been together for 20 years, you've raised kids together, you've lived together, it's been a huge part of your life. What do you mean we weren't married, technically? What does that mean, right? So you get into a really sensitive pastoral area. Again, this is something that I think Pope Francis has been really great in terms of his leadership in the church. The exhortation Amoris Laetitia is is one teaching document, one teaching you know, magisterial document of the church that that addresses this. It's not the only one, but recognizing that there are very complex, very at times painful realities that are atypical or that are are un, uh, that are extraordinary, and that you know this kind of juridical analysis of the sacraments can be very painful and and reinscribe pain. I think that may be a good place for us to leave this discussion. And let me kind of sum it up by saying this, that marriage is complex, both in terms of getting into the institution of marriage, the sacrament of marriage, but also in terms of the church's approach to marriage. But my takeaway from this conversation is this, that the points where the church gets too judgy and juridical and is not leading with its pastoral sensitivity, great damage can be done. And so what I'm hearing from kind of Pope Francis and from you is that the church largely should be looking at this as an exercise of its pastoral muscles before its juridical muscles. Have I heard that correctly? I I think that's right. But I also want to say, too, that the statement of annulment and the process of analyzing a marriage in which the couple has sought the declaration of annulment and the whole tribunal process can seem laborious and litigious and juridical. And in one way it is, but it is actually, and you know, here I'm going to try to shed some positive light on this. It is actually a pastoral attempt to accommodate realities in people's lives that are, as you say, complex, you know, marriages that have broken down or maybe never should have been to begin with, you know, that end in separation and divorce. And so it is a pastoral response, though it's an incredibly painful one because the whole experience itself is painful. Whereas civil divorce itself can be painful, it tends to be, it could possibly be much more abrupt, especially if both parties are in agreement. I think the process of annulment is painful for people because it, it quite literally drags everything back out into the open, right? There are processes of interviews and, and, and in an effort to respond pastorally. You know, there are a lot of theologians and canon lawyers and ethicists who are doing work to try to understand the sacrament of marriage better about the role of annulment, about the possibility of divorce. And I think, you know, just, you know, to your point about where to end here, pointing back to Amoris Laetitia, you know, one of the most controversial things there was this question about whether or not divorced and remarried people who have not had the statement of annulment in that first marriage, whether they should have access to the Eucharist and to other sacraments. And you know, there isn't a blanket yes, a free-for-all, but there is, in, a, in I think, a very important way, a pastoral acknowledgement of these complex situations, and that there may be situations for a variety of reasons in which the statement of annulment can't be given, either because people don't have access to tribunals, or the wait is too long, or there are non-cooperative parties, or because the whole process is too traumatic to be re-traumatized again in the drudging up of this experience in an effort to find a reason for annulment. Whatever the reason may be, 
Are there other ways we can pastorally accompany people so that those who, who desire to seek the sacraments, which is the movement of God's grace of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, I mean, I just think it's so important to talk about that reality because as beautiful as as the sacrament of marriage is, and just by way of, you know, to use a, a Floridian 2000 metaphor of a hanging chad, I don't want to leave, you know, something I said earlier just hanging out there, just because the church as a normative practice in the West didn't celebrate marriage in the church context doesn't mean that the church didn't recognize it as a valid sacrament. I just want to make that clear. It just meant that it wasn't always being done in the context of the church space itself until you got to a point in in world history and European history where the church was keeping the best records and it became, you know, convenient for a number of reasons that it would take place. That's a oversimplification. But one of the things that the church teaches is that this, the sacrament of marriage is something that was actually established by God, God's self, right? Like all the sacraments are. And, you know, there are some documents that will even point back well beyond John's gospel and the wedding feast of Cana to Adam and Eve as, you know, from the very beginning, there was a sense, you know, which is why that reading is often in the book of Genesis it comes up at, at is uh, the first reading in a lot of weddings. All of this is to say is that it is, in, in its ideal, a beautiful sacrament, but because you're dealing with, in particular, a sacrament that centers on a relationship in which the ministers are themselves the couple, and that couples and relationships are, as you rightly say, complex, it is a very, very complex sacrament. So perhaps there will be time in the future for us to spend a whole lot more talking about it, maybe one of our bonus episodes down the road. But that's probably, like you say, David, a great place to end. finishing out this season with a discussion of holy orders. In some ways, this is the most visible of the sacraments. Whether we're talking about marriage, the celebration of the Eucharist, or baptism, it's hard to imagine these sacraments in the Catholic context without also imagining the presence of a priest or a bishop. And when you attend Mass, you have also probably noted that there are key roles reserved to deacons when they are present. And so as we finish out this season, let's roll up our sleeves and talk about the sacrament of holy orders. So Dan, I'd like to start here. At some point, you discerned that you were called to become a priest. What did that feel like? How did you know? It was July 8th, 1993. I was minding my own business, and I got a phone call. And the call was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, for some reason, sounded like this. Dan! Become a priest! Ah! <laughs> it's a great question, David. And... um the way that I've often talked about, it, I think we've talked about this too. We've been on, you know, six seasons in now. I'm sure I've shared some of this somewhere along the way, but I, I often talk about my vocation, as I understand it, being discerned in two parts. That as even as a young boy, I was fascinated with the liturgy, and I give my parents a lot of credit for my mother, in particular, very much resisting cry rooms. You know, and I understand that some people feel more comfortable there if they're embarrassed. You know, if kids are rambunctious and this sort of thing, which I certainly have always been, but. She took kind of an opposite approach. My parents would have us right up in the very closest pew to the front of the sanctuary they could get. So we would always be right up front, you know, these little first and second graders, you know, looking over the kind of pew, mesmerized is how I kind of remember it, with what was going on up in the sanctuary and and very curious. You know, I, one of my earliest memories is my desire to be an altar server. I just thought it was so cool, these slightly older kids, you know, in fifth and sixth grade who got to be so close to what was going on. 
So I was always kind of captivated with the liturgy and with the ministry and with prayer and with the church and with theology. And so, you know, when I was in high school, I worked at my home parish as the sacristan. So it was a part-time job. Uh, during the school year, I worked on the weekends and, you know, took care of the church and readied uh, everything for the masses and the baptisms and weddings and this kind of stuff. And uh, and then in the summertime, for many summers in high school, I worked full-time doing landscaping and kind of maintenance work as an, on top of the sacristan sort of work. So I was always very close to the parish life. And I just felt this this general feeling like this was something that I was interested in, something I felt, I guess, to use the kind of cliche of vocation talk, I felt called to. And it wasn't, I can't identify one singular moment, just a general kind of overarching feeling. I, I think I would imagine it was something like, you know, when we were talking in the last segment about discernment about, you know, the partner in marriage, where there may or may not be one moment where there's a kind of crystallization. There is certainly a moment where you you get engaged. There's a moment where you have a conversation where there's a tipping point. You know, there's a moment where I decided to enter, you know, to fill out an application to become a Franciscan and these kinds of things. So there's certainly that, but I think there's a, a general slow o awakening and awareness to that reality. And that's been my experience. I say vocation in two parts because um, I felt a call to sacramental life, to ministerial priesthood, to be very technical about it prior to even my awareness of the reality of Franciscan friars and the Franciscan community. But I feel like that's a more fundamental vocation of mine. And so I kind of discover them out of order. But that's my that was my experience was that it was it was something that's always been present to me and something that I kind of grew in greater awareness of. And so when we talk about the roles in the church, the deacon, the priest, and the bishop, I think that there is one group of theologians that believe that that's a kind of unitary activity, that they all kind of form a line, that you start as a deacon because you're going to become a priest, and then eventually, hopefully, you'll become a bishop or something like that. Uh, or at least maybe that's the lay perception of how this sort of thing works. Are they, are they unified in that way, or is each office of ordination distinct? in terms of its sacramental role? Yes and no. They are related. They're tied together because they center on the bishop, and I'll explain that in a minute, but they are distinct. You used a, a very good technical term there. They're, they're different offices, um, and you're ordained to a particular office. So it, what's important to realize is when we talk about priesthood, priesthood is a very general term. By virtue of baptism, all the, all the faithful are share in Christ's priesthood. You know, you are a priest, a prophet, and a king, the so-called triamunera. And so um, priesthood is not something reserved for ministerial priests. That's the distinction here. So there's the priesthood of the faithful or priesthood of the baptized, and there's ministerial priesthood. One is ordained to ministerial priesthood. Now, ministerial priesthood is in fullness or it's in participation. And so the fullness of ministerial priesthood is held by the bishop. The Episcopal office is the fullness of priesthood. I am a presbyter. I am, you know, we use colloquially the term priest, and that's perfectly fine. But a bishop is also a priest. A bishop is fully a priest. As a presbyter, I participate in the fullness of priesthood, which is in communion with the bishop, which is why, for instance, in the Eucharistic prayer, it's both an ecclesiological statement, and it's also a statement having to do with holy orders, which is we pray for the bishop of Rome, who is the symbol of universal communion, and you pray and name the local bishop. That's why ministerial priests who are presbyters like me 
we do not have authority on our own. We share in the authority of the bishop, which is I don't have, I don't grant myself faculties to licitly celebrate the sacraments in public. That comes from the local bishop because the local bishop as an episcopoi in Latin and Greek rather means overseer. He oversees, is the leader of the diocese, but in, theologically he holds the fullness of priesthood. So presbyters, that's the technical term for the office. I, I belong to the college of presbyters. I share, I am a ministerial priest who shares in the priesthood, the fullness of priesthood that's held by the local bishop. Deacons are a bit of a weird category. They're kind of as, <laughs> I was going to sound really condescending or really uh, bizarre to refer to them as kind of like a zombie office. That's, and I don't mean to be dismissive in any way. It is a distinctive office, but deacons do not share in the authority of the bishop canonically. They do not share in the ministerial priesthood. And you can see that by what sacraments they are permitted validly to celebrate. And the sacraments at which they can preside are things like weddings, uh, marriage, which is, as we know, they are not the ministers of the sacrament, just like the priest or a bishop presiding over a wedding is not the minister. The couple is the minister, are the ministers. They can celebrate baptisms. Well, in, in any baptized Christian can validly baptize somebody else and can even licitly baptize somebody in the Catholic Church in certain circumstances. They are the ordinary minister of communion, but we have extraordinary ministers of communion that any lay person can be admitted to. They can proclaim the gospel and preach, though again, there are certain circumstances, celebrations of the Eucharist in the absence of a priest, certain exemptions that are made for preaching or even for proclamation of the gospel that lay people can do as well. And, and so on and so forth. So the question sometimes is, what does it? what is a deacon? What is the office of the diaconate or the college of deacons? And they are ordained to it, but, but they don't share in the authority of the bishop. They, don't, they aren't ministerial priests. So what is the role? What, what are deacons? Well, deacons are the, back in the uh, second, third, fourth, really fifth, up to the fifth century in the West, they were the primary ministers. They were like a full-time minister with the bishop. And the presbyters, the term presbyter comes from a word that means elder, but it has nothing to do with with age or seniority. It has everything to do with the role that they serve, that the College of Presbyters were what we think of today as, as your local priest, for instance, or what I am, what I'm ordained to, were the advisors and consultants who worked with the bishop, but they actually had more of a kind of a part-time role. So, you know, deacons, the term itself, diaconia, is oftentimes translated as service, and that's also true, that they they are ministers of, of service, um, bringing communion to the sick, you know, educating the faithful, these sorts of things. But their primary role is to assist the ministerial priest, and, and that is in the fullness of the bishop and in participation with the presbyter, which is what they do. To your point, they, they are distinct offices. I think maybe a layperson who is aware that ordination does something, they may be confused or wondering what exactly it is that ordination does. So when a person undergoes sacraments of orders, of holy orders, does something change? Is there some kind of magical process that changes in the person? So what So what? What changes and what doesn't change? Yeah. So uh, you'll hear sometimes this language, ontological change being tossed about. And that is, the church does not teach that. That is not part of our teaching. Nowhere in any of the conciliar documents, nowhere in the particular law of the sacrament, nowhere do you see that language. That language is relatively new. 
as best I can tell, it's traced back primarily to the late 1990s or early 1990s, excuse me, when then Cardinal John O'Connor of New York gave a retreat. And he first used that term. John Paul II in a document uh, used the term ontological when reflecting on the priesthood, but didn't use it in the way that people think of ontological change. That is, as you rightly asked in your question, that's magical thinking. Ontological change by definition is insane. And ontological change is for a person is insane. What I mean by that is Thomistic metaphysics says that that we're constructed of matter and form or substance and accidents to think about it that way. What happens at the Eucharist can rightly be described as an ontological change because the being of the substance that we would ordinary, ordinarily recognize as bread, the being becomes the sacramental presence of Christ while the accidents remain the same. That kind of language applied to holy orders is very misleading and is theologically inaccurate. It would su- seem to suggest that what you see me the day before my ordination, I am Dan Haran, a human being, then upon my ordination, I still seem to be a human being, but I have been changed ontologically into something else. The quip I like to say, and I joke with my students sometimes about this is, if you talk about and try to argue for an ontological change for ministerial priests, then they are no longer considered human, and they are therefore no longer protected by the Geneva Convention, and you can torture a priest, you can do all sorts of things to priests because they're not human beings. So that's a bit of a joke, but you see the logic as that follows. So what does happen? That's your question. What does happen is what's called an indelible character is imprinted. So there is something that's permanent about ordination that's distinctive. So so it's analogous to a to baptism. It's analogous to confirmation, right? An indelible character is is related to the priest. So there's something about them. So what does that character entail? The character entails a true change, and the change is a change of relationships. So your relationship to the bishop changes as a ministerial priest. I'm only going to talk about presbyters now rather than deacons because it's complicated there. But for a ministerial priest, we, partic- we we relate to the bishop differently than the ordinary layperson does. We relate to Christ differently because when we celebrate and preside over the sacraments, it is Christ who acts, not us. Christ who consecrates the Blessed Sacrament, not us. It is Christ who baptizes, not us, right? Christ works through the ministers of the church. And our relationship to other priests change, other presbyters. We enter into a, a fraternity, into one kind of college. That, you know, it's one priesthood that's shared. You know, uh, and our relationship to the faithful changes, to the baptized changes. We arise from the baptismal priesthood, and the ministerial priesthood is ordered to service to the baptized faithful. So our relationship changes because we have a different responsibility and role and relationship within the church, within the body of Christ. But I can't overstate this because it's only in the modern era that people have really latched onto this ontological change as if that's, you need, you need this kind of weird metaphysical magic, as you put it, to justify the dignity and importance of the ministerial priesthood. The ministerial priesthood as Christ, going back to John's gospel, as you did in talking about marriage, you know, the, the gospel that we have proclaimed on Holy Thursday is the gospel of the service at the table, which is the washing of the feet. It's about, you know, Christ saying over and over again that it's, it's you want to be my disciple, you lay down your life, you serve others, you love others. It's a ministry of service, not of some kind of magical elevation of a person over and above and against everybody else. Well, as we look forward in the 21st century, one of the things that we often hear in North America is a shortage of priests and a, a kind of lack of vocations. I'm wondering, as we as we sort of finish out this discussion of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, what does the Church need to be doing 
to be addressing that problem in terms of lack of vocations and attraction to the priesthood? Or does the church simply need to be staying the course as it has been, and the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest? I have a lot of different thoughts about that. It's, it's probably, again, something worth noting and returning to at another time. I, I will say this, that one of the thoughts I have sometimes is people talk about a crisis or a lack of vocations. I don't know that that's entirely true. I tend to believe fundamentally that, and this is based on my own experience and based on my theological reasoning, which is that God calls people to different offices in the church all the time, but God does not compel us to do that. You know, otherwise we wouldn't be exercising free will. You know, I felt called to ministerial priesthood and a vocation to Franciscan life, but I didn't have to do this. And I could still, you know, it's like you and your marriage, you know, it's a vocation you're called to, but you could choose to walk away. You could choose to ignore it. You could choose to do something else. And at any time, right, it's an everyday decision. And that's true with ministerial priesthood. It's true with, with any vocation. So there's part of me on the one hand that thinks the Holy Spirit is continuing to call and inspire people to this way of life, to this particular office in the church, to this kind of ministry. Now, the question of what number is sufficient, how many people and who is admitted to that office, these are all complicated questions. There's part of me that also thinks that in the U.S. context in particular, there were sociological, as, as a number of scholars have pointed out, there were sociological reasons why there was a huge boost of the numbers of, uh, of priests and, and men and women religious in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and then that decline. I think it's a false narrative to talk about the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s or the feminist movement or any of these other things as, as having an, a deleterious effect. I kind of think, and I agree with the scholar Sandra Schneiders, um, that that was a, a lot of people for reasons that may not have been the Holy Spirit's calling found themselves drawn to life and may have been very good ministers and very good religious for a time, but that was not ultimately where they were meant to be. I think that we are still operating in many ways, and you see that with the number of churches, particularly in northeastern urban areas. You know, every block has a Catholic church on it. I mean, that that maybe never should have been the case. You know, it was it was a false inflation of of numbers. So that's one thing worthy worth considering. I also think, you know, and and this is maybe something for another time, is if we talk about God is the one who calls people to ministerial priesthood, to the diaconate, to religious life and so forth, and to marriage. Then the question is raised, well, how do we as a community discern who God is calling, right? Because that's part of it too. The the theology of the church says that it is not a dem democratic sort of thing. The, the community does not appoint somebody, a ministerial priest, a presbyter or a bishop or even a deacon, but the community affirms the discernment of God's call in the individual. There's a, there's a role for that in the rite of ordination, actually, where a representative of the community stands up and says, you know, we know this candidate, we affirm they're being ordained. It's actually a very moving experience in, in the ordination rite itself, you know, and I remember my own experience there. But it's not, you know, like some Christian denominations, it's not a job sort of thing where people are, you know, you have a search committee and this kind of stuff. But all this is to say is that I think it is complicated. I think there is a problem. One way that I see it manifesting itself is the problem is of distraction and noise. You know, institutions of vocation have been in the decline, whether that's the institution of marriage or the institution of ministerial priesthood. And, and I think they're of a piece together, which is 
people have a very hard time discerning where God is calling them because there's so many distractions, so much noise, so many possibilities, and so many pressures that say that you know any kind of commitment is is foolhardy, and that what you should do is keep all options open and this sort of thing. So that's a long-winded answer. I think there's so much more to unpack there about who God is calling, who's being recognized as being called, who theologically should have you know, should be admitted to the sacraments. You know, this is an, this is a live question right now, particularly the diaconate. And it's it's a lot more open gender-wise of the diaconate because the diaconate, as I said, does not share in the authority of the bishop, does not, uh, is not a ministerial priest. There are things for which the a deacon is, is ordained to be the normative or ordinary minister of, but those are things that are also in exceptional circumstances, any lay person, baptized person could do. So it's complicated. There's a lot to unpack there, man. So for listeners who are interested in more conversation about the diaconate, particularly on Things Not Seen, my other show, I have an hour-long discussion with Phyllis Zagano, who is a, a, a recognized world expert on the history of the, the diaconate and particularly the role of females in the diaconate. So I, I'll put that in the show notes. But like Dan said, we have been having these kind of conversations conversations now for six seasons, and I'm so grateful that they get to continue. So please expect us to be coming back to this question and to others in coming seasons of The Francis Effect. But for right now, thank you so much for having listened to us through this season, and if you've been a regular listener through our other seasons. And Dan, I'm always so grateful to get the chance to talk to you. Thank you for all of these conversations. David, likewise, I've always looked forward to this. Uh, I can't believe it's been six seasons. That's 48 regular episodes with uh, hopefully season, season seven coming to your ears this fall. Hopefully, by the time we get back on the air, we'll have a lot to celebrate in terms of being hopefully safely, healthily on the other side of this global pandemic. In the meantime, we're certainly in solidarity with you all in prayer and in thought, and we ask the same uh, from you. Uh, may the Lord give you peace. Peace.